We have to pass the bill so that you can uh, find out what is in it. What? If you like your doctor, you will be able to keep your doctor. What difference at this point does it make? If you're looking to make sense out of what's going on in the world today, then you've come to the right place. Welcome to Southern Sense Talk Radio with your host, Annie, the Radio Chicky Bellis, and featuring Curtis C.S. Bennett and the most interesting guests that you'll find anywhere on Internet radio. And you can join the show and let your voice be heard by dialing 917-889-3675. So sit back, relax, and remember, Southern Sense is Common Sense. shortage, toilet paper shortage. It's crazy. If you're worried about the future, I really don't blame you. Millions of Americans are wondering what to do. How do you hedge your bed? How do you protect yourself and your family? Well, Americans are quietly stocking up on emergency food, shouldn't you? So ask yourself, Do you currently have enough food on hand to get you through the next month? If not, you should strongly consider getting a four-week emergency food kit from My Patriot Supply. They're the nation's number one preparedness company, and their mission is your survival. They've served millions of American families, and they will be honored to serve you too. So right now, you can save $50 off their four-week emergency food kit, which comes with breakfast, lunch, dinner, drinks, and even snacks. This food gives you a minimum requirement of 2,000 calories per day, and the special packaging keeps it fresh for up to 25 years in proper storage. You can't go wrong. So head on over to prepare with SouthernSense.com and claim your four-week emergency food kit at this special price. You'll save $50 per kit if you act now. So if you're on my website listening to this show, go up to the top corner and you'll see my smiling face on the left-hand side where it says prepare. Click on that link to My Patriot Food. 
or you can go to preparewithsouthernsense.com. Be prepared. All right, and welcome to another adventure here. You're listening to Southern Sense live on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, Global Enlightenment Radio, up on iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, iHeart, Facebook, YouTube, and half a dozen other places. You know what I'm going to say next. Just go to the name of the show, put a dash middle, southern-sense.com. I'm your hostess, the least mostest, the Radio Chickadee, Annie, along with my debonair and erudite co-host, Curtis C.S. Bennett. Good afternoon, Curtis. Hope you had a great St. Patty's Day. You have a little Irish. Oh, yeah. It's, <laughs> it's about the only time of the year that I get to have a corned beef uh, sandwich uh-huh. <laughs> with some beer. <laughs> No Irish whiskey? Oh, come on. You can't be that Irish. No Irish whiskey. That that sounds like a plan. You're the man with the plan. I mean, we had the corned beef. Mom and I had the corned beef and cabbage. I had made so much last year. I separated it into the freezer. So all I had to do was pull it out of the freezer and make some biscuits to go with it. (laughs) Lazy old me. That's all right. I still have one container left, so I'm going to give it to my sister to take home. <laughs> left oh, <over> okay. Barbara. <laughs> anyway, we got ourselves the Jam Up show, show, the, the teeth in backwards again, Jam Up show today. Uh, we've got Clarence McKee. Uh, he wrote the book, How Obama Failed Black America and How Trump is Helping It. Uh, then we have um, Harlan Ullman. Uh, he has a new book out that just came out uh, late December, The Fifth Horseman and the New Mad. Now, this is, this is an interesting book because the subtitle is How Massive Attacks of Disruption, M-A-D, MAD, How Massive Attacks of Disruption Become the Looming Existential Danger to a Divided Nation and That World at Large. And you look at what's going on around now, Black Lives Matter, uh, CRT. Now we have the ESG uh, credit ratings. You've got the war in Ukraine. You've got China rattling its saber. You've got Iran getting Biden to come back into the nuke deal. I mean, we see one big thing happening across this globe after another. And we're going to be talking to him about that. Uh, we have our friend Mark Tapscott. This is his bi-monthly visit from the Epoch Times, or Epoch Times, as he says it. He's the chief Washington correspondent and a dear friend. And then from the Heritage Foundation, we have a new young lady, Patty Jane Geller. And this little lady has a set of credentials on her that is absolutely stunning. She's a policy analyst for nuclear deterrence and missile defense at the Heritage Foundation's Center for National Defense. Wow, can you say that all in one mouthful? Holy cow. So I'm not even going to try. <laughs> We've got ourselves a really, really good jam-up show here. And uh, I'm going to have a lot of fun today. Definitely going to have a lot of fun. Uh, but that said, to Yeah. That said, those that listen to the show know that we do start off each and every show with a dedication to a fallen hero. And today's dedication is going to go out to Sergeant Chris Jenkins of Loudoun County Sheriff's Office 
out of Tennessee. His end of watch was Thursday, February 3rd of this year. And this is coming from several different sources, the first one being the Officer Down Memorial page. It reads, Sergeant Chris Jenkins was struck and killed by a tractor trailer while attempting to move a ladder from I-75 near mile marker 74. The ladder had fallen off the back of utility truck and created a traffic hazard on the interstate. Sergeant Jenkins had brought traffic to a stop with a rolling roadblock and then exited his vehicle to remove the ladder. An oncoming tractor trailer was unable to stop and struck Sergeant Jenkins, his cruiser, and several other vehicles. The vehicle that dropped the ladder never stopped. The driver of the truck that struck him was charged with vehicular manslaughter by intoxication, vehicular manslaughter by recklessness, two counts of reckless endangerment, DUI, simple possession of narcotics, possession of a handgun under the influence, and possession of drug paraphernalia. Sergeant Jenkins was a military veteran and had served with the Loudoun County Sheriff's Office for 20 years. He survived by his two children. His son also serves as a deputy with the agency. Sergeant Jenkins was the first cousin of Deputy Sheriff Jason Scott, who was shot and killed in the line of duty on March 12, 2004, while also serving with the Loudoun County Sheriff's Office. And this is from Knox News, from Sergeant Christopher Allen Jenkins' obituary. Sergeant Christopher Allen Jenkins, 48, of Loudoun, Tennessee, passed away February 3, 2022, while in the service of the Loudoun County Sheriff's Office. Chris is a 1992 graduate of Loudoun High School and a proud member of the Loudoun Redskin football team and also a veteran of the United States Air Force. Chris served the citizens of Loudoun County for 20 years at the LCSO, a consummate professional. Chris loved being in law enforcement and the law enforcement family he worked with. Over his career, Chris served multiple positions at the LCSO as corrections deputy, patrolman, and ultimately canine officer rising to the rank of sergeant and supervisor. Chris took great pride in being a father to his son Clay and daughter Chloe, spending time with the love of his life, fiance Christy Ingram, her daughters Hannah and Delaney, and Christy's parents Bill and Becky Kirkland. Known for his contagious smile, witty and often curious sense of humor, and strength to make fun of himself, instead of others. Chris will truly be missed in the communities and families of Loudoun County. Chris never met a stranger, possessed enormous warmth, placed all others before himself, and was loved by all. Chris was blessed to enjoy so many close friends in his 48 years. His absence will be felt by all. Chris is preceded in death by his canine partner, Diego. And this is from MSN.com. Law enforcement and Loudoun County residents alike 
say they've known Chris Jenkins for years. Loudoun County Mayor Buddy Bradshaw is one of the many devastated by his death. I have known Sergeant Jenkins for 40 years, probably, said the mayor. We went to school together, played football together in high school. Mayor Bradshaw added, it is a tragic day, no doubt about it, and Chris will be very, very much so missed. Loudoun County Sheriff Tim Guider was hardly able to speak at our press conference that afternoon. It's something that nobody ever wants to go through, he said through tears. Other members of the sheriff's office were also very emotional. We're a family in this small agency, and this is home to us, so everyone here is a person, not a number. Sergeant Matt Virginia said of the sheriff's department, everyone loves Chris and loves his family, said Russell Johnson of the district attorney's office for Loudoun County. We've grown up with him in our jobs. Sergeant Jenkins not only made an impact on those in the, in the department, but in the community as well. Today has been heartbreaking and devastating, said Lauren Ferguson, who went to school with Jenkins' son. It was shortly after 8 a.m. this morning that my phone just started blowing up with the news of what happened this morning. She'll remember him as a family man and a great officer. Ferguson added, prayers for the Loudoun County community, prayers for the police department, prayers for the Jenkins family. Our hearts and condolences are with you, she said. Sergeant Jenkins not only served his county, but was a big part of it. And she added, we're all devastated. We are all heartbroken. We lost a good person today. And this is from Melissa Green from Watt.com. Solemn, but solemn. Broken, but not broken. The thin blue line held strong Wednesday for the family of Loudoun County Sheriff's Office, Sergeant Chris Jenkins, as the fallen officer was laid to rest. Having a dad in law enforcement ever since I was young, and before I signed up to do what I love doing, I planned this very day out in my head over and over again, hoping it would never happen. Or at least I'd be somewhat prepared, said Deputy Clay Jenkins, the son of the fallen deputy, and also a Loudoun County deputy. I wasn't prepared for how much this hurts. This is by far the hardest thing I've ever had to do in the short 25 years of my life. In those 25 years, though, I had the best daddy a boy could ever imagine. Hundreds gathered alongside Jenkins' mom, son, and daughter outside the Loudoun High School gymnasium for the afternoon service. Attendees included Tennessee Governor Bill Lee, who spoke of the sacrifice of the in law enforcement. I remember telling my own kids when they lost their mom at a young age, what you are experiencing, experiencing, very few people ever know. What that means is that there are things you now know that few people will ever know, he said from the podium, a photo of Jenkins over his shoulder. Part of that is deep understanding, a richness to life that can only come in circumstances like this. 
is a bit of the redemption nature of God. But it's brokenhearted at the moment, and my heart is with all of you in this family. Fellow deputies spoke of working with Jenkins in a profession where one spends just so much time with coworkers as family members. In his obituary, Chris Jenkins' canine partner, Deja, is listed as a survivor. Deja was in the car but not injured when the fallen officer's vehicle was struck along I-75 on February 3rd. His former canine partner, Diego, preceded him in death. I hope there's a crown vic in heaven with him riding in it. Jason driving and Diego in the back seat. His son, Clay Jenkins, said at the memorial. Today's show is dedicated to Sergeant Jenkins. It's also dedicated to all the brave men and women out there that serve as first responders, be they law enforcement, firefighters, or emergency services. We also dedicate this show to all the brave men and women that serve in our military from the birth of this nation through today and into our promising future. We dedicate to all of them this song by Todd Allen Herringer. May God bless each and every one. Stand for 
to the Southern Sense Live, along with my... Oh, I forgot even to say who I am. It's <laughs> just with the, the nuttiest, least mostest, Annie the Radio Chickadee, along with my co-host, who's probably scratching his head and going, what is she going to do now? <laughs> <laughs> Not quite. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, man. Oh, man. Oh, man. Anyway, just calm down, Annie. It's not Friday the 13th, so we're okay. <laughs> yeah, oh, the 18th. Uh, oh, man. Well, at least I've got everything up we're running right. and working properly today, so you know, I, I really can't complain too much. But, yeah, i got to tell you something. Um, I got I got flipped out. I get an email sent through my Tea Party email address, and I'm thinking, oh, this is going to be a joke. I mean, it can't be serious. But then as I read through it and I look at, you know, the identification and everything that's on there and the supporting information, I said, you got to be, you gotta, excuse me, S-ing me. you got to be S-H-ing me. So I respond, the email was from the corporate headquarters of Newsmax, believe it or not. And they were doing um, something about the censorship of con- conservative voice. They wanted to get some feedback and some ideas and how to battle it. And they mm-hmm. reached out, of all people, little old me, in this little tiny corner of South Carolina. I don't know how they got my name or why they chose me, uh, but they did. And uh, we shot back and forth for about a good 20 minutes on a Zoom call, uh, bouncing ideas around and everything. So it looks like that uh, I may be helping to spearhead a campaign, at least here in the state of South Carolina, to keep our conservative voices on the air and in the print. Interesting, huh? Yeah, we need that. We we need more people and more groups on our side standing up for, you know, our, our freedoms and liberties, what's left of it, you know, and then yeah. in hope I mean, that we take the House and the uh, Senate and the White House, we can regain all of those. And And I would wish instead of executive um, orders that we have a Congress dominated by conservatives who will put the stuff in the law so that when the next Democrat, if they ever get back in, don't just dismiss it with a, an executive order. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I hope so too. I really do hope so. Um, but it is uh, very interesting that out of, out of all the people, I mean, there's a lot of people that are higher up the food chain than me. But little old me, so I don't know who dropped the name. And then we started uh, talking about some of the guests that they have on Newsmax TV. And it's funny because I'll walk through and I'll see someone like Clarence McKee up there, um, or I'll see my friend Gordon Chang up there. It's like, yeah, all right, I, I know that one. I know, I've interviewed that one. Yeah, and, and I said, I, I get a kick out of it. I said, someone in your corporate headquarters must be listening to my show. <laughs> Oh yeah, because it it is it is so so funny, but you know I really do enjoy uh, little things like that. It kind of like tickles my day, you know. <laughs> yeah, but you never you never know who you know and who is going to help, and that's the important thing, right? Yeah, it's a good feeling to be loved and to be heard, and even better than mm-hmm. that to be understood. Correct. To be able to communicate clearly too. Yeah. So I'm sending Clarence. 
I'm sending Clarence a little quick thing to remind him to call because I know that sometimes he gets involved in writing an article and these guys tend to forget. So I'm just sending him a quick text on that one. So I, I thought that was really pretty funny, but it's true. We, How many of us have found ourselves Facebook posts taken down, tweets taken down, find yourself putting FITMO or TWITMO uh, because you did something that they felt violated terms of the community? And whether you're, you're, you're saying uh, doctors should be able to prescribe invermectum to people with COVID in the beginning stages, uh, 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 wait a minute, that's against what Fauci says. You can't say that. What are you, beach Nazi police? You've got to be kidding me. It's, it's that um, cancer culture mentality. I'd be glad when we yeah. do away with that. Cancel them well, for We've got to fight back. We've got to fight oh, back. Yeah. And I don't think canceling them is exactly the answer. What we have to do is say, there's always two sides to the conversation. You want to say something as stupid and foolish as you want to? Go ahead. I'll defend your right to do that. But be prepared to defend it. Be prepared to defend it. I'm willing to defend my words. Can you? But that's their problem. They can't. They can't defend their words. So the only way they can win a conversation is trying to cow you, insult you, and shame you. And that's where the cancel culture has got to stop. I believe that uh, that is one of the the primary goals of this cancel culture thing. They know a lot of their young students and 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 others. They they're not well versed on political matters, and they don't want them to be converted with the truth by our side. So they come up with this cancel thing whereby you don't have to stand up to us. If you know they, if we start saying something to them that they disagree with, they just automatically dismiss it, and they don't mm-hmm. have to explain why. And I believe that is truly what's behind this because they they can't defend themselves, and that's the point, you know. So why would you have to defend yourself if all you have to do is just dismiss the other person? Well, Herman Cain had it uh, correct. He said, whenever you get to talk to someone from the opposite side of the aisle, and if you're not going to have good conversation or meaningful, intellectual, a good exchange conversation, um, you're going to find out immediately because they're going to do this every single time. And watch how Biden does this so skillfully. Pelosi, Jen Psaki, you just watch and you, you can time it almost to the second when they're going to do each one of these things. He goes, they will always sin, S-I-N, yeah, like from the Bible, sin. The letter S stands for when they get into a debate with you, they're going to switch the topic, switch the subject, switch whatever it is you're talking about and turn it around on you. That's the first thing. Then the next thing is the letter I. They're going to ignore the facts. And how many times have we seen Jensaki and the others declare things to be facts when there was absolutely zero basis for it? No facts whatsoever. They just made something up out of thin air and figure if they say it often enough, you'll accept it as a fact when, in fact, there is no factual basis. And the last thing they're going to do when they can't switch a subject and you bring them back on path, when they ignore the fact and then you show them what the true facts are, 
They know they can't win, so then they call you names. That's when the word Nazi, bigot, racist, homophobe, xenophobe, any phobe they can think of, they will hurl at you. That's when you know you won because they don't have a leg to stand on. Herman Cain put this brilliantly. And the first time I heard it, I said, oh, my God, he nailed it. And that's what our cancel culture is. I agree. And what a fine warrior for our side that we're missing. Herman Cain, Rush Ball, quite a few of them are no longer on the battlefield with us. Well, he's on top of my, uh, what do you call this thing, above my desk, (laughs) the cabinet, (laughs) sitting up there smiling down on me. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I met him up in North Charleston a number of years ago uh, when he was working with the uh, groups uh, for the Convention of States. Really, really lovely man. And he was so kind, so very, very kind, because they were having a hard time taking a picture of Yanni and I, and they finally figured out how to work it. And he just stood there so patiently, smiling, laughing, chatting. That's a true American. That's what America really is truly about. You get along. You know, you enjoy life. We have so much abundance here. But the the thing is, is no, 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 no. Government has to control you. You can't control yourself. And that's what we're facing right now. So I don't know if you want to try to call out to Clarence, but uh, I sent him a text. Okay, I will try to call. So I'm going to mute myself and I'm going to give him a call. Yeah. Now, meanwhile, while Curtis is doing that, I came across, I I think every once in a while, we got to do a feel-good segment. We got to talk about something that makes us feel good. And this, I, I know a bunch of you all have pets, cats, dogs, whatever. I came across this and I thought this was just too hysterical. And now there's supposedly a video up on this one. It's under healthyhappynews.com. And it's titled, Woman Confused with Dog. <laughs> now, this, this I found so, so absolutely hysterical. Now, she has a dog, and the chief is about a year old, still very much a puppy, and he always finds trouble or adventure, no matter what he does. So, Whiteley Hester, the chief, uh, chief's family member, describes him as a very mischievous puppy who makes all kinds of trouble and loves chewing up rugs so chief was neutered recently which where he he had to wear that cone around his neck for about two weeks well he didn't like that at all and he whined all the time and he attempted to actually gnaw at at the cone but to no avail and obviously looking forward to the day when he could finally get rid of it he had to wear it for two weeks but struggled to make it that long said hester the first day he was frustrated in fact he refused to get in the car or even walk at first if he had it on. Chief, on the other hand, handled the cone well and was finally free after two weeks. Now, this is where it gets really funny. On the same day Chief got to take the cone off, Hester found him wearing again later in the day. She instantly went about trying to figure out, you know, how the heck did this happen? How the, how, why is the cone back on the dog? So she, she thought it was, it was really funny so she 
asked her mom. She goes, I was so surprised because I knew that my mom had taken it off of him that morning. I went to ask why he was wearing it again, and she replied, he's wearing his cone in a shocked voice. Well, Chief apparently decided to put the cone back on for reasons unknown to his owners, even though he openly disliked wearing it. He appeared to be fine with it as long as it was entirely on his terms. <laughs> well, she writes in her, uh, her, her Twitter feed, uh, she, she said, he did, in fact, put it on himself, hated it so much that he tore it to pieces, but now it's an accessory. So Hester watched Chief rolling around with his cone on, chewing it, playing with it, having a great time, and he seemed content. And she suspected he was just relieved he wasn't obliged to wear it anymore. I think he felt like he won the battle, Hester said. After his victory lap, Chief decided he had enough of the cone. He simply wanted things to end on his terms. Now, that is adorable. I thought that was just just too, too cute and too funny. So no luck, Curtis, huh? No. All right. I left him a message to call in, though. Probably just got busy. No, that's what I'm saying. You know, between him and Mark Tapscott, every time... Um, I invite them on. They get involved in writing a uh, uh, an article or doing some research or interviewing someone, and uh, and it, uh, they forget about little old me. <laughs> uh, I think it's just time that flies. That's all. And they realize it after it's kind of kind of late, but mm. he'll he'll call. No, he You know, if it's available. If not, we'll reschedule yeah. him. Yeah. But as you say, yeah. you know, there's more than enough to to um, talk about today with the um, Ukraine situation and and our lack of leadership in the world and things like that. Well, we're gonna be talking with that with Dr. Um, Harlan Omen with that one, and also uh, Patty Jane. We're gonna be talking with them on that. So I want to hold off a little bit because they can get us deep into the woods on exactly what's going on because there were new breaking stories this morning. Um, so I'm sure they're up to the very, very latest can tell us what to believe and what not to believe. Uh, but I want to point out that this week several more police officers were killed in the line of duty, ambushed. And um, this year... In the first three months, January, February, and we're only halfway through March, 77 police officers have been killed in the line of duty, or have died in the line of duty, I should say. Of that, 13 alone were from gunfire. 46 this year from COVID. Now, if we look at the statistics for last year, total line of duty deaths. 579, 409 wow. of those from COVID, and 62 from gunfire. And it looks like we woke up sleeping beauty. So let's welcome onto the show our dear friend, an old friend, Clarence McKee. Good afternoon, Clarence. How are you doing? Clarence? Clarence, unmute, unmute yourself. Right now. Hello. Oh, he's talking. Hello, Clarence. Hello. How are you? 
I, we hear Pretty you. Pretty good. You? Can you hear I'm me? I'm hanging in there. Yep. You at shopping with your mom and oh. your wife again? Hmm? Hang on one second. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> I had to make a move. I said you out go shopping ahead. with you out shopping with your wife again. You're buying her those diamond rings. How's everybody? All right, <laughs> we're fine. Um, I was starting to talk about an article you wrote just last month. Um, Oh, geez, Lord. I just had a brain fart. Newsmax, I believe, uh, about the number of police officers. Yeah, about the number of police officers that have been killed in the line of duty. But yet, if it was on the opposite shoe, if it was Black Lives Matter, there'd be a major uproar. But because it's police officers, they're expendable, don't you know? Well, it's really amazing. Um, <laughs> you're going to have blacks kill blacks all day long. You're going to have blacks kill whites all day long. And you've got blacks in New York City. I mean, really going on a rampage, well, not all blacks, but many blacks, going after Asian women, beating them, punching them. No one says a thing. But you let one white person shoot or harm a black person Regardless of what happened, though, it's always racism, always. And that's what's uh, the truth is going out the window. And we, yeah. we black, we can to each other, but don't let a white guy hurt us. Then it's racism. It's a double standard, you know. So, or same thing applies to an Asian cop. They were kids. They've been shot. Uh, he had two Hispanics. There was two guys in New York. No one raised a cane. Was was Mr. Crump there at the funeral? Was Al Sharpton? No. But that's it's a shame. Horrible double standard. No, it is. And yet, what's the first thing they're going to do if their car gets stolen or someone parked in their parking space? They're going to dial 911 <laughs> and expect an officer to respond when they give the officer zero respect the rest of the time. So they only want right. us there when they need us, when they're in trouble and they can't get out of it. But, Correct. heaven forbid, we're around there to make sure everything stays peaceful and your car doesn't get stolen. No, 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 no. We're bigots, we're racists, we're xenophobes, homophobes, you name it. <laughs> hurl the book. I've had the book hurled at me. What happens if the police decided to call in sick one day? Midnight to, midnight uh, to 7 a.m. Hey, Clarence. I've, this is How are you CS. doing, C.S.? All right. I see this as the left having a narrative, this defund the police force thing, as a way to get us to where they want us, and that's a state of anarchy so they can come in with the feds and take over law enforcement all across the country. But I think they underestimated the people, even the people in these communities, um, because when it came time for them to vote to defund the police, <laughs> they said, no, we need them. So, right. you know, that that put out the fires that um, that were, like, roaring as far as those who wanted to see destruction and, and, and right. chaos. And But, that, like right. I said, the people voted to keep law enforcement. And I think this happens often in politics. They they forget that they're 
there is a will of the people. And if the people stand up and voice themselves, they discover that they have power. Well, here's here's the the odd thing, though. Um, you have a vast majority of people that really do support the police and want them there. Like we saw what was going on in the vote in uh, Milwaukee. It was Milwaukee, was it? I forget now. Uh, that they voted to keep the police, matter of fact, to fund them even, even further. But we're not seeing the movement of those who want us to remain as a massive movement. They're being cowed by Antifa, by Black Lives Matter, by the critical race theory being taught. They're being told to sit down and shut up so they don't go to the polls to vote on these critical issues. Clarence, how do we turn around and get these people fired up enough to exercise their right to vote and determine what government and what protections they have in place? And don't let someone else turn around, cattle you down, and force you to live in a cesspool not of your choosing. Did we lose Clarence? Curtis, I think we may have lost Clarence. No, you didn't. I heard you. Oh, Can you hear oh me? okay. Yep, I got yeah. you now. No, unfortunately, it's going to take a very bad situation when somebody of fame or politicians kids or family gets hurt in one of these situations and it's really sickening you've got um, people have to start getting up and fighting back if you don't fight back they're going to run all over you take these prosecutors in these big cities in fact seven of them are black new york chicago san francisco i think no yeah san francisco i believe and a lot of st louis they're the ones who are letting people out of jail, letting criminals go out and kill mostly black people, right? So mm-hmm. until you have some, unfortunately, more white people get hurt by these thugs and these prosecutors, then people are going to say, wait a minute. And if you tolerate it in the inner city, it's going to come right out to get you in suburban Portland, suburban Seattle, and suburban New York. So people are going to have to wake up and say, I don't want this happening to my family. If you wait too long, it's going to. Well, you know, I'm just curious. Why is this? there a major attack wave going after Asians? What, what is, is it because of the COVID virus coming out of Wuhan, China? I mean, what, was, what brought this on and what's the basis for it? Is it because they're well, normally people uh, that just mind their own business and, and are timid? Or what? Well, you know, it's interesting you say that because <laughs> COVID was just a teeny part of that when they didn't want to call it the Chinese virus and all those things. But, you know, Asians don't basically fight back. Um, you don't have groups of Asians. You don't have a, an Asian AACP or people of uh, Asian Lives Matter. And also you don't have so-called civil rights leaders or members of the Black Caucus speaking out when these Asians are being beaten up by black people. They're nowhere to be found. Any, if four black women in separate instances, incidents were beaten up by four black guys, okay, do you think you would hear nothing about it in the news or among the black media or black leaders? Oh, my gosh. 
they'd be protesting like crazy. But until the same blacks who get upset when a black is hit by, brutalized by a white, get upset when an Asian is brutalized by a black, nothing's going to change. It's a sickening, disgusting, hypocritical double standard because it all says color you are as whether or not we're going to get upset. It all depends on the color of the perpetrator and of the victim. If the victim is the right color, oh my gosh, we're going to raise cane. But you can't. You don't have any politicians with guts either. The white ones shut up. Don't say anything about it. You don't have enough Asian politicians yet. But that's why people are so. Uh, you don't hear much about this. I don't know if you agree with that, but that's the case. I think. Well, you know, it, I it, believe. It, 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 well, I, I was going to say they're a community that's normally a tight knit community. Um, yes. They're, and they just go about their business. Are there gangs in there? Yes, I will say just definitely, uh, especially in Chinatown in, in New York City. Yes, there are you know, Asian gangs mm-hmm. around, um, but they're normally uh, behind closed doors. We really don't see the work, not like you have with a lot of these drug gangs that are coming in with MS-13 and the others. They're very overt. With the Oriental, it's covert. Uh, it's more quiet, so they don't raise a lot of um, interest by law enforcement but with that said then they're more prone to not go to police because they're being told you go to the police you're going to be in trouble consequently we're seeing the the rise in attacks but mostly against elderly who can't fight back so these cowards these SOBs are going after people they know cannot defend themselves that's right that one woman that he followed into the apartment, he hit her over a oh. hundred times. I mean, yes. punch someone once, twice, over a hundred times? That's pure rage. It's also hate, yeah. Rage and hate. Yeah. But he, he's, well, I would... he's one of the people these prosecutors let out of jail, isn't he? Yes. He's one of them. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And then you have a, such a wonderful person to speak up for all the people of the United States and the world. Uh, but did you catch this, Clarence? I mean, I, I fell out of my Archie Bunker chair laughing when they showed me the trailer. Stacey Abrams happens to be a Star Trekkie. She's a Trek fan. Uh-huh. So they offered her a role on this TV series, Star Trek Discovery. It's season uh-huh. four finale. She now plays, and catch this, a cameo role of the President of the United Earth. Oh, a borderless God. government that rules over the entire planet. Uh, Star Trek is, I know oh. Star Trek was building woke, but how woke is it now? With Stacey Abrams as President of the United Earth. And then in an interview later on, she was asked if she was going to run for president. And she basically said, yeah, I am going to in the future. (laughs) Does that mean if she becomes president of the United States, she gets to wear a Star Trek uniform? (laughs) She's right where she needs to to be in a fantasy world. Because people here in in reality is not going to accept someone like her. Um, I was also going to comment. Well, I was let, let also going to comment first. Well, Chris, let, let, let him finish up on uh, Stacey Abrams because I've got to hear his his side. Go on, Clarence. 
Well, she can't win in Georgia, so she's going to try to win around the, the universe, I guess. She is a joke. She is really a joke. And she cost the people of Atlanta hundreds of million dollars when, because of her, the All-Star game left and the end uh, the uh, baseball commissioner folded. It's a shame. I can't stand mm-hmm. it, really. She's not yeah, a she course, she she course. I hope Herschel Walker can beat them all. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. I'm, all right, go ahead, Curtis. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, most of us know from the, the minority community that it's a lot of hatred towards um, um, Anglo-Saxons in this country. And that hate is is cultivated through the the media, our government-run schools, community leaders, and things like that. And and that is why we can have, um, say, like black-on-black crime and nobody raise a, a stink about it, but let one cop kill a black. And they're seeing everything through the prism of um, racism. And not only that, even though it may amount to maybe nine police shootings a year, in the community, the minority community, they think it's a it's an epidemic. You know, it must be because it's so big. So they think this is really a a, a problem, an issue in the United States. When really, if they look at black on black crime, it dwarfs anything that that involves a, a a white cop shooting a black or other minority. Well, there's there is a lot to that, but how do we counter it now? How do you turn around truth? and say yeah. Martin Luther King's thing of content of character over color of skin, but yet they can't get the votes, they can't get the political power, they can't create victims to be their followers without being divisive. So we give a message of love, charity, and one for all, all for one, whereas that doesn't work for them. They don't want to pull with everyone in the same direction to make ourselves a better yeah. country, a better people. They, they don't get their power by letting us unite. They can only keep their power by keeping us divided. Because the more we unite, the more we realize we do stand on common ground. And the more we stand on common ground, the more we know they're liars. But Clarence, we can't, they, they can't have us calling them liars. They can call us that, but they, we can't do that. Nope, nope. They need their power. They need their victims. Yeah. Our side needs to develop a good, strong set. we got to get tough and fight back. Quit being the, the victim all the time and afraid to speak up. You know, that's what's going on around the world right now with, you know, Ukraine. You know, Putin knows that the West are cowards, that they're not going to speak up or do anything. So that's why he's doing it. I know we, this never would have happened under Trump because he was respected. Now, if you're not respected and they'll run all over you, whether it's a, a community, whether it's a group of people in a neighborhood, they will run all over you if you don't fight back and respect yourself. And on our side, we're too quiet. You know, I'm so glad and proud of these parents who go to school board meetings. They need more people doing that. They need more people saying no. We're not going to take it anymore. Remember the movie Network? Mr. Mm Beale looked out the window and said, 
Hell no. We're sick and tired. We're not going to take it anymore. That's what Americans have to start doing, people who think like us. We really have to mm-hmm. think that way. Because uh, it's exactly. bad. And it's going to be your kids and our kids who suffer. No, but not only parents go to the school board, but the everyday taxpayer out there, the everyday residents. Because when you pay your property taxes, you're paying school taxes. When you register your vehicles, your cars, your motorcycles, your boats, uh, you're paying school taxes. You go into any business establishment or use any service where you live. A portion of that is going to pay taxes. Now, if you want your community to stay healthy and produce good, competent citizens, having them graduate as adults and fully functional adults in your community and not sponges on the system, then you want to make sure you have the best education for each and every kid. And that's your tax dollar. So those that say, well, I don't have kids or I'm too old for this. No. No, no. Open up your wallet and start counting how much money every single day in the food you eat, the utilities you use, in everyday things that a little bit more every day is going into those taxes, whether it's for your local government, your school board, or whatever other government function. And if you're not involved to see where your taxes go, then you deserve the community you live in. Yeah. We're paying them to abuse us and to disrespect us. That's amazing. And we're sitting back and taking it. All you have to exactly. do is speak up, I'm telling you. And then if you speak up loud enough, you get a Department of Justice that might support the average American instead of the left-wingers. You know, you look at what's going on when the Department of Justice wants to uh, come after parents who protest the school board meetings. It's, you know, where are we in Russia? You know what Trudeau did because to the truck drivers? Well, the Department of Justice yeah. is doing the same thing. The parents, you know, what's the difference? Russia is a pay, uh, Putin is arresting people in Russia for protesting, right, against him. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that happened with Trudeau in Canada, and they want to do it here yeah. to protest too much against the left. These liberal mayors, they are a disgrace to the country, and it's the left that's going to destroy this country. It's not the right wing. They always talk about the fascists. No, the left are the ones we're putting this country in danger. Well, you know, they already did that on January 6th, the January 6th gulag. And they even went after people that simply were in Washington, D.C. By tracking hotel and restaurant. And you may have not even been anywhere near the doors of the Capitol, much less on the grounds of the Capitol. But they investigated you. Heaven forbid you even right. drove through and stopped for gas. And so where are the civil, excuse me, the civil libertarians? Where is the uh, American Civil Liberties Union? They're all asleep because you're not on their side. You know, one thing, I was on a radio show, a podcast last week with Alan Dershowitz, and I, I did say I respect Mr. Dershowitz because he sticks to his principles. He stands up, and he said, I don't have a party anymore. He said, the Democratic Party today, I don't know. He said, these are leftists, you know. And he sticks by his principles, no matter who gets upset on the left. And we need more people like that on both sides who stick to their guns. A lot of people should have been upset with what happened with Trudeau. They're not. 
No, no. And that, that was criminal, holding the, the organizer, I forget what her name is, for all that time. No attorney, no phone calls, just keep her completely incognito, despite the fact she and her attorney told the judge, yeah, you know, I'll, I'll live by the gag order. They still held her for weeks on end before deciding to let her go. It's like, well, we're going to make sure you learn your lesson, little lady, so next time you start to open your mouth, we can tamp you down in a heartbeat which is what they're doing to us. This is exactly what they're doing to us. And we've got to turn around. I'm I'm mad as hell, and I'm not going to take it anymore. And that's what we all got to say, right? Uh, Exactly. I tell you. But I'm and then do something about it. And then do something about it. It's it's amazing. Yes. Now, Curtis is going to be getting ready to call our next guest, right, Curtis? Yeah. Yeah, oh, okay. I just want to add that I, I am hopeful. I am hopeful because um, I have a sister who's hardcore liberal. And we had a conversation the other day, and she stunned me, saying that she she's thinking about re- voting Republican this time because she just don't like what's going on with Biden. She hates Biden, so that's a good sign that their own their own in their own camp they're not you know they're not favored. Well, I, I got to oh, say, yes. uh, vote for Democrats, right? <laughs> I don't know if your sister will vote for another Democrat. I bet they will. It's one of us that say, well, I'm not voting for Republicans anymore. But they will stick. Mm-hmm. These people complain about what's going on in New York City and these other seven cities. You know, as I wrote in one of my Newsmax articles, they get all upset about what's going on. But you know something? They're going to turn around and vote for the same people all over again. And until people get tired of that, they are deserving what they get. The trouble is the rest of us mm-hmm. don't deserve it. Now, as a matter of fact, it, when they do decide that they're not happy with what they have, what do they do? They move out of that state to a red state and then mess us up. So I tell my group all the time, <laughs> we meet still, the Tea Party meets once a month. As a matter of fact, my next meeting coming up is this coming Monday. And I tell them, well, if you just move down here, Here's the first thing you're going to have to learn when you move here. We don't give a damn how you did it up north. What we do here and we are well, red is what we're going to keep. That's a good point because I tell folks, they say all these people are migrating to Florida and North and South Carolina. say, fine, let them come here. But don't bring their doggone liberal views in politics here, too, because that's what they're voting to leave with their feet to leave. So don't come here. And try to bring the same thing here that you left in New York City or in California. So you make a good point. Well, well, Clarence, it has been a pleasure. Tell your wife thank you for lending us once again. So we have to get you back again because there's a lot more I wanted to talk about. I mean, I had a stack of stuff for you. But uh, we'll we'll get you for more than half an hour next time. So tell tell your sweetheart, next time, honey, can I have a little more time, please? (laughs) Okay. Okay. (laughs) You betcha. (laughs) You betcha. All right. God bless. Thank you. And thank you. Thank uh, you. The, uh, Mr. Bennett. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Uh, all right. Uh, Clarence McKee. Check him out. Clarence McKee, Yep. And we've got our next victim up on the line. Uh, he was sent to us by someone that was a sweetheart. Want to welcome to the show Harlan Ullman. 
Uh, he's the author and political commentator. He's, uh, if I can get this all correct, senior advisor to Washington, D.C.'s Atlantic Council. His latest book is A Mouthful, The Fifth Horseman and the New Mad, How Massive Attacks of Disruption Become the Looming Existential Danger to a Divided Nation and That World at Large. Good afternoon, Harlan. How are you today? Nice to be with you. Oh, it is our pleasure. I was having so much fun going over your articles and other things, and uh, unfortunately, Quint sent me your book just last night, so I haven't been able to read it yet, and I love always to read the author's books first before I interview them. That way, you get a flavor of who they are, what their voice sounds like. So I'm going to have to have you back to do a complete book review with you and talk about all the other things going on. Is that a promise? Terrific. Absolutely. Just tell me uh, when. Okay, great. Great. You know, um, tell us about this term, MAD, the, um, oh, good Lord, brain fight, massive attacks of disruption. Massive attacks of disruption. Yeah. I mean, Delighted. I was giving some examples Dirty. earlier today, but uh, some of them are just so subtle, we don't even realize what's going on. But COVID the and pandemic is the perfect example. All this off. Um, during the Cold War, something called MAD was called Mutual Assured Destruction because both the Soviet Union and the United States had more than enough nuclear weapons to literally blow up the world. But virtually nobody got killed. There was no nuclear war. Today, however, with the arrival of what I call the Fifth Horseman of the Apocalypse, armed with a new mad, massive attacks of disruption, COVID has killed around a million Americans, plus or minus. That is more Americans who were killed on every battlefield we fought since 1775. But people are not paying sufficient attention. And, of course, COVID is only one of the really key disruptors. And I'll just pick a couple of them off, Penny, uh, if I may. The first and probably one of the most destructive of disruptors is failed and failing government. The Senate celebrates because it passed unanimously daylight savings restoration bill. But when it Mm -hmm. comes to heavy lifting, like passing budgets and taking care of the nation's business, both Republicans and Democrats are failing. And that's having, I won't say catastrophic, but very, very negative effects. Next is climate change. And whether you think that's weather or not, Storms are intensifying, sea levels are rising, polar ice caps are melting. Uh, You can take a look at the intensity of fires, floods, so forth. This is real. Now, it may not be existential, but it's real. Then there's cyber. And, of course, with cyber, you have the imagination of a 10-year-old kid sitting in his den, taking out all the electrical power and the electrical grid, which is no longer science fiction. Social media. I can make a deep fake production of you in some very compromising act that will seem right and seem real, and it can ruin somebody's life forever. Debt. We have $30 trillion of debt. The Federal Reserve has just raised interest rates by 25 basis points. That's a quarter. But what happens when interest rates go to 3 4 5 6 or 7%, which they may? We're going to be spending most of our money on servicing the debt. We can't afford that. Then there's terror, which is now shifted to the domestic version of terror rather than the foreign terrorists. And what's interesting here, Annie, in my book, I have one chapter that compares the 1918-1920 Spanish flu pandemic with today's pandemic. 
And one of the intersects is that terror in the United States was far greater than 24 letter bombs, which killed two people, sent the country in panic. And because of World War One, we had the Espionage and Sedition Acts, which meant people were detained for something as simple as criticizing Army uniforms. Fascinating period. And then last drones. Supposing drones had been used by the attackers on January 6th last year, the Capitol. You see what drones are doing in war in Ukraine. Well, they can do the same thing here. And what people have to do is understand the enormity but the coherence of disruption. And we have to pattern that and how we organize our government, organize our lives so that this disruption can be handled, whether it's an act of man or act of nature, and it can if we're commonsensical and smart. And I have a number of recommendations we can go into about how we can accomplish that, which will be obviously the benefit of the entire country. Well, I, I agree with just about almost everything you said, except when it came to climate. Um, I will have to put you in touch with a dear friend of mine, uh, Gregory Wrightstone, who heads the CO2 coalition, and there's a lot of facts and debates that we can go into climate. I mean, a lot more people are now living in areas where we normally won't, closer to the water. So when it seems like it seems like high tide, well, you're building too close to the water. We're also moving into other areas where traditionally people didn't live, where you would have storms that were not recorded. So there's a lot of debate on climate, but that could be for another time. But there's so much in your book with what is going on today, uh, look at what we're looking at in the Ukraine. Now, we're seeing an escalation by Putin on the Ukrainian people, hitting hospitals, hitting children's shelters, uh, hitting areas that, by the Geneva Convention, are illegal, and yet no one's stopping him. Now, is, would you call this a shock and awe? Or is he trying to no. do something different? This is terror. Uh, I invented the concept of shock and awe. And shock and awe is not what most people think. Shock and awe is by winning, by doing the very least. Uh, if you can win without force. And the idea is to be able to control will and perception of an adversary to get them to do what you want or to stop doing things you don't want. And quite frankly, Putin is using shock and awe on the Russian people because the majority of Russian people believe what he says. That is shock and awe. But what he's doing in Ukraine is obscene. It's uh, no doubt it's war crimes, but we have very, very, very little leverage that we can apply to Putin. We can't arrest him. We're not going to send troops in. And so the best we can do is to continue to support uh, the Ukrainians' uh, admiration for their courage and steadfastness and hope, but hope is not a strategy. And we can get into some some things that um, we should be doing in any event to realign our own defenses because what's happened, Annie, is that we're spending huge amounts of money on these highly expensive, very, very, very capable platforms. A nuclear aircraft carrier costs $15 billion, and that's not without an airplane. An F-35 costs $100 million. And while these things are enormously capable, they're pretty expensive. And so we don't have enough money to be able to pay for the things we have right now. And so in the book, I go into something called a porcupine defense, which is a low-cost high-value way that we should be defending ourselves to make any potential attack or disrupt any potential attack to make it so costly that uh, an enemy wouldn't do it. And had the Ukrainians been equipped with the stuff that I'm recommending, recommending the Russians would not get out the front door. Yeah, you know, 
I've been following this, you know, intensely. And I also noticed that in the new defense budget, they cut back a lot of military equipment, necessary military equipment, the F-35 being one of them. They cut that uh, order rate down to about two-thirds of what was originally intended, or probably even less. Uh, But we've got an aging plane uh, fleet out here. A lot of these guys are still uh, flying the F-19s. I mean, there's listeners out there in this audience that were born after the F-19s went into service. You've got pilots that are younger than the planes. This is a disaster for our air superiority. At this point, we, we lack it, don't we? Well, that's not, that's not true. Um, it, there's no doubt that some of our systems are old, but they've been rebuilt so many times that they're not B-52s or 60 years old. Uh, but, you know, at the Battle of Trafalgar, HMS Victory was about 60 years old. No, I mean, we need to update. But I would argue that, quite frankly, however good an F-35 is, it can be replaced by relatively inexpensive drones and unmanned systems. I mean, supposing the Ukrainians had 10,000 drones and 10,000 missiles, which do not cost, for example, for $100 million, instead of buying one F-35, you can buy a thousand one million dollar uh, tomahawk missiles. Um, those are marvelous weapon systems. Or you can buy ten thousand one thousand dollar drones. So numbers count, and because of artificial intelligence and the like, these things can be programmed so they don't have to rely, uh, for example, on radars and traditional guidance. Uh, and these are the kinds of systems we need in large numbers that are inexpensive. The problem, however, is that the big defense companies don't build them. They build F-35s. They build aircraft carriers. They build submarines. And I'm not saying those are not important, but I think we have to be able to shift to a military that uh, is half what it is right now in terms of the current weapon systems, and the other half is really much more modern systems that rely on drones, unmanned system, electronic warfare, deception, all sorts of other instruments that are vital in a three-dimensional, four-dimensional information age. There's so much to discuss on this one because I'm watching the reports today and it looks like the Russian troops are basically stalled. They're losing their morale. You got got some guys using Ukrainian uh, uh, ammunition to shoot themselves in the leg so they get sent home because they don't want to be there. They thought they were going to be peacekeepers, not an invading force. And then they're being forced to kill civilians and some children. One as young as two years old. It's starting, I think, to backfire Putin. Yeah, but is, is Look, Putin realizing Eddie, me, he's in a, a big that, bind? No. But let me make a point that will be offensive, I think, to some of your listeners. Um, we did some similar things in Vietnam. Yeah. We dropped more bombs and fired more rockets and missiles than we did in all of World War II. We had the bombing campaign in the north, and we were not limited to military targets, even though we said we would. The CIA had what was called the Phoenix Program, which was an assassination program that killed some 50,000 South Vietnamese who were suspected of being Viet Cong or North Vietnamese agents or sympathizers. So we did an awful lot of bad stuff. You may not remember me live in Cape Batangan in the northern part of South Vietnam, where Lieutenant Kelly killed 150 yep. innocent Vietnamese. Uh, now, these were rare instances, but they happened. 
but this happens in any war. And the problem in this particular case is that Putin's war is being fought based on terror and killing civilians. And the great tragedy is that we do not have sufficient leverage or weapons to deal with him directly simply because we're restricted for the time being in using force. However, Obama, if he were to use chemical weapons, and the reason I don't think he'll use nuclear weapons is because all the fallout falls out, falls out over Russia and China. But if he uses chemical weapons, I hope that we are prepared to launch a massive, a massive a precision strike to take out basically all his logistics and command and control in Ukraine. And we are capable of doing that if it's so ordered. Whether that will be planned or not, I don't know. But Putin should be aware of that. Well, now, the question is, is, do you think our government will underestimate Putin's brain? Wait a minute. There's a bear, you know what, in the woods? Uh, yeah, I think they are completely underestimating him and his drive. He just recently fired the top gen- general that uh, plotted out this whole invasion. That's your right-hand man. He's losing. He's already lost a couple of generals. He's losing senior uh, military equipment, uh, not equipment, people, uh, senior military officers, because the Ukrainians are fighting back so hard. You take out the top echelon, the troops fall, right? Well, look, the trouble is that the Russian people aren't hearing that. Go back to Vietnam. For how long did Americans support the war and the light at the end of the tunnel? We didn't realize there was no tunnel, let alone a light. And so publics are going to follow their government. How many Americans believe the Bush administration, Bush 2 administration, about Iraqi mass, weapons of mass destruction? So this is not abnormal. This is the way publics operate. And about Putin, I have three chapters in my book that go over Putin and President Xi of China uh, and Russia, the Soviet Union, and China in terms of their history, culture, society that enables you to understand where they are today. Let me tell you a, a Russian folklore story that will describe Putin for you and many, many Russians. Oh, the genie. Um, the genie, ago, right? Were, Go ahead. Hundreds of years ago, hundreds of years ago, imagine there were two kulaks, peasants, hated each other, and they are in neighboring farms. One will call Vladimir and the other forest. And Vladimir is out in his farm, finds his urn, rubs and out pops a genie. And the genie says, for freeing me, Vladimir, I will give you one wish. But whatever you want to wish, I will double that for Boris. So Vlad rubs his chin for a bit, thinks, turns to the genie and said, take out one of my eyes. If you understand that, mm-hmm. you understand Russian. Yes, exactly. And, and that was in your article oh. in The Hill titled Inside Putin's Brain. Yep, precisely. Now, I did not. I, I do I, my I research. I strongly believe <laughs> and argue. <laughs> Thank you for reading it. I strongly urged or believed that Putin was not going to invade Ukraine. Because if he did, he would make all of his objectives unachievable. Namely, he wants a new security uh, structure in Europe. He wants NATO to uh, retract itself. And obviously, he wants Ukraine never to join NATO. He's just made NATO stronger. We're going to increase our defense spending. And uh, we have now made Putin a pariah. So he's done exactly the opposite of what should be done. The question, there are two questions here. First, how do we end this? And second, after we end it, what next? We never asked the what next question. We went into Iraq the second time to take away the non-existent weapons of mass destruction. But what do we do about Russia? Do we want to create a situation 
as after World War I with Germany, uh, if we keep Russia as a pariah state, will that make it more vicious? Or can we show some sort of largesse, which is very difficult, uh, especially if Putin is not gone? So we need to be thinking these things through. And I'm arguing right now, or at least thinking, we may be entering a new era in politics, which is not exactly Cold War, not exactly hot war, but it's bad war. And we need to be able to think our way through. And quite frankly, any White House would be overwhelmed. It simply does not have enough bandwidth to deal with not only this issue, but you're the president, irrespective of party. Gasoline prices are going out the roof. Inflation is going up. You've got elections coming up in November. You have a Supreme Court Associate Justice who the Republicans are going to try and block. Uh, you are literally a 21st century Joe in terms of what is being dealt. And so I have a lot of sympathy for any White House. So thinking through what happens not only tomorrow, but six months or six years from now is very difficult. But we need to be doing that because uh, this may not be the worst of all situations. This could get worse, not just for the Ukrainian people, but for the Russian people and the world at large. And we need to be thinking about how we can prevent that from happening and reinforcing some kind of a future framework that will make us all safer uh, and more secure. And I go into that in my book as well. Yeah, I mean, this administration has done so much where they could have dug us out of a bit of a slump, a little bit of a slump. Instead, they just slid us completely downhill into it, you know, first by turning off the spigot with the oil, cutting down the pipelines, restricting drilling, holding off on allowing permits to be given for the lands that are available to to, uh, lease on. There's so much they have done. Plus, you've got a porous southern border where we don't know, even know who's coming through, or whether or not they're good or bad or ugly. And we've got an absolutely disaster in that area. And sooner or later, someone's going to come out of that woodwork and have another 9-11 here. That's very scary. They're talking about uniting the electrical grid nationwide. That's the world's worst thing you can do in case an EMP gets dropped on us. If you take out a small section, fine, we can rebuild it. But you take out the entire nation, millions of people will die without the electricity. Well, I mean, I there's so many things they can start with, just book. basic infrastructure like that. Well, let me tell you what I recommend in the book. Um, as you know, we have a $1.2 trillion infrastructure package that's been approved and signed into law. But the problem with it is, first, Who's in charge? Who's coordinating? I don't know the answer to that. I mean, obviously, there's going to be somebody like the Secretary of Transportation and the former mayor of New Orleans has been put in charge. But what authority do they have? This goes down to the state and local level. Second, it's simply not enough money. Now, the centerpiece of my book in terms of what we need to do to get well is what I call a national infrastructure investment fund. It would be about 3 or $4 trillion dollars. Uh, even though it, the book was written before the $1.2 trillion was approved, that money would be rolled into this infrastructure money, and the money would be raised as we raised war bonds from the public, where people would get, say, 2% over prime, 30-year bonds underwritten by the government. But the interesting aspect is how do we pay this off? And we do it not only by user fees and tolls, but you may recall in 2008, in the financial crisis, the government, Hank Paulson, the Treasury Secretary, invented this thing called the Trouble Asset Relief Program, in which the government put up $800 billion, made all the big banks become public, and took a piece of the action. They had equity, um, which they could then convert once the banks got well. And so we made 
hundreds of billions of dollars on this. Why can't we take pieces of equity when we invest in the infrastructure? We invest in green energy. We invest in AI, artificial intelligence, pharmaceuticals. Take a piece of the action. So this thing becomes entrepreneurial and the best of the capitalist system. And that way we look at infrastructure across the board to include education, to include healthcare infrastructure. Three or $4 trillion, boy, that would make this country competitive for a century. Whether we'll be able to do that or not, I don't know. We seem to lack the imagination to think about big things anymore. So we'll see. Well, you know, here in the state of South Carolina, we've got legislation up there to take back the education system, throw out the CRTs and all of the lovely, lovely uh, indoctrinations like that here, and we would cut off any funding to any school. So we're starting in the beginning stages, but we also have a governor here that's very welcoming to bringing new businesses in, which he's doing a fantastic job. The red states are doing it. It's just the blue states that are, are pulling us behind. And unfortunately, they're the ones, the swamp, that is controlling the capital, which now gives us a administration that is kowtowing to the Chinese. And the, he's, Oh, Biden was giving him a list of things China can and can't do. Like, that's going to work. Z is sitting there. He's laughing <laughs> in his butt off. But this, this little... Pipsqueak, this this senile old man is going to give me a list and tell me what my great country can do, what we can and can't do. I'm going to swat you like a fly. And plus, they're hooking up with that's North what, Korea, Iran, Saudi Arabia, Russia, and they're making their own axis of power. And soon we'll have no power. We won't be the leading well, I don't agree with that. nation I mean, of the world. Frankly, I, let me make a couple of well, no. Um, the United States still will have a very, very strong economy. I mean, one of the things I worry more about China, and I lay this out in my book, is uh, it could implode. <laughs> this could be a Soviet Union. China has so many internal problems uh, we don't recognize. Just as we didn't recognize the problems in the Russian army, which nobody predicted, China has similar problems across its economy. But then, let me make a couple of points here. Uh, first, I think that uh, failed and failing government is not going to be fixed overnight. And as you know, both parties have become dominated by their extremes. Worse, too many representatives in both houses of Congress represent their party and not their constituents. You come from a purple state, or you come from a red state or uh, a blue state, you represent your constituents and the other 49.5% have nowhere to go. This is a huge problem, and I'm not sure how you can fix that in the short term. You talked about education. I think we make a profound mistake because this is not about education. It's about learning. I don't care how educated you are. I want to know what you know. And we don't focus on that. And that's something I think we have to change philosophically if we are going to get the most out of our education system to induce learning at all levels. And that's obviously going to take time because like everything else, education has become politicized. And uh, I'm just glad that when I grew up, all my teachers were either elderly women who'd been teaching for 25 or 30 years or GIs who got through the GI Bill after World War II, their education. And I will tell you, I, yes. you know, I've got many degrees. I've got a PhD. I think that those teachers then, after World War II, were probably the best I ever had. I would only hope we could recreate that in some way, shape, or form. Yeah, I, I had quite a few of them, too. And uh, I always put it this way. You can be book smart. 
you can spit facts and data out left and right. But if you're not street smart and have common sense and knowing how to take that knowledge and utilize it for the better, what you have now, whatever you learned, means diddly squat. Put it to use. Show me how you could use it. And we need to change around. That's why trade schools are much more important. Uh, But, you know, I would change the Secretary of Education, the Department of Education, to the Department of Learning and incorporate technology, change the focus. And uh, very, very difficult because things have become so politicized. And a lot of this stuff, you know, deals with 1% of things that have become so important when they're really not. I mean, the basics, as you know, of reading, writing, arithmetic, and thinking are what should be most of all done. In fact, in my book, I call for a brains-based approach to strategic thinking, which really is that. In other words, understand that this is the 21st century, which is profoundly different uh, than the past, and we can't operate with 20th century notions and assumptions. Second, knowledge and understanding are critical, and we get into trouble when we have insufficient knowledge and understanding. And third, the aim of our policies should be to affect influence and even control will and perception of our targets so that we can achieve what we want at virtually all levels. Now, some of the military academies, uh, certainly abroad, have adopted this way of thinking. But I think we need that sort of a standard here in the United States to teach people how to think. And we just don't do that enough. No, we don't. And creative thinking, critical thinking, are two things that no longer are stressed with our youth growing up. You know, if you can spit out back to your teacher exactly what they want to hear and not a syllable, not an I crossed the wrong way or T crossed the wrong way, you've got to give it exactly back to them. And that's not learning. What's the practical purpose? I mean, once I graduate from high school, how do I use this? It's like when I graduated high school, I, I loved mathematics. That was my forte. But when it came to certain areas of it before you went into calculus, having to spit the formulas back out word for word, every single punctuation in place, something in me rebelled. I could use the theorem. No, I, I can show which I, theorem yeah. it is. But if, if you have me spit it back out. But yet I took that math, owned a business, and when I couldn't find my sales tax, uh, chart to figure out how much sales tax to charge my customer. I did it mathematically in my head. I took that knowledge and was able to utilize it in a real sure. environment. That's what's missing. Go ahead, please. Let me let me uh, let me give one suggestion that will make a lot of your listeners smile or even laugh. That can fix Congress overnight, but I guarantee you will not be implemented. As you know, every public company chief executive officer has to certify that all data and information that is released by that company is accurate. Otherwise, they can go to jail or they can be head up on charges. That's the Sarbanes-Oxley Act. Well, I propose for Congress that before any member votes on a bill, he or she has got to affirm or swear that they have read and understood it. (laughs) Now, people are going to laugh. But... And the argument is, you know, the bills come in late. I don't have enough time. It's 4,000 pages. Nonsense. If you can't do that, you should not be in Congress. And to give you a parallel, we talked a bit about the Vietnam War. In 1973, when Don Rumsfeld was Secretary of Defense the first time, 
when we had several hundreds of thousands of Americans fighting a war in Vietnam. How long do you think the defense budget was? 90 pages. How long is it today? Almost 3,000 pages in the Senate and 4,000 pages in the House. And even though it's double-spaced, that's absurd. That's absolutely absurd. And if Congress can't discipline itself, that becomes the root of the problem. Now, will they do that? Of course not. But they have to. They have to because this is just nonsense. Uh, And this is one way of stimulating that Congress could be more efficient. And people are going to have to demand that this happens because we need that we get the government we deserve. And right now, the government we deserve is not the government we need. No, no. I would add into that, before you pass any bills, show in the Constitution where you have the authority over that. I mean, mask mandates and vaccine mandates is not in the Constitution. That's down to the states. Show me where it is. And well, maybe I, you might have something accomplished. Well, uh, first of all, the government has certain uh, rights that it, it retains. But my point is that one of the problems we face right now is that the Constitution may no longer be fit for purpose. As you know, the Constitution is based on three branches and a balance of power. And a balance of power requires one of several criteria. One party can control both ends of Pennsylvania Avenue, the White House and the Congress, with veto-proof majorities and five seats on the Supreme Court. That's not going to happen in anyone's lifetime, I don't think. Second, there can be a crisis like Pearl Harbor to rally the country. But COVID was a crisis that killed almost a thousand times more people than died at Pearl Harbor, and yet it divided the country. Or you can have civility and consensus. And two things that are missing sorely on the Hill are civility and consensus. And so that is a huge problem. And I come in in my book with a number of recommendations to try to fix those issues. For example, the Constitution has a ticking time bomb called the 12th Amendment. The 12th Amendment argues or states how the president shall be selected if the president cannot get uh, 270 votes in the Electoral College. But in this case, in the House of Representatives, each vote, each state has only one vote. So North Dakota, Rhode Island have the same amount of votes as Texas, New York, and California. And that means a party that controls the large number of states, even though it may represent a small percentage of the population, can then elect the president. And right now, Republicans control 26 of the 50 delegations. And quite frankly, they represent uh, well under half the population, much closer to about 35 or 40 percent. That needs to be fixed along with the Electoral College Act of 1887, which is so confusing, it can be a catastrophe. You know, we've already had them, 1876, 2000, when the Supreme Court elected the president, and of course 2016 and 2020. We need to fix those because they are definitely ticking time bombs. Whether we will, there's some legislation that's been proposed. I certainly hope so. But people need to understand the Constitution is not working the way it should, and we have to be aware of that because we're going to need to take steps, policies, and changes in our organization to deal with this reality. Well, it's it's very obvious with the attack on the First and Second Amendment, the attacks on religion, the attacks on free speech, uh, the attacks on attempting to remove our right to bear arms. And I'm always amazed in the clause of the Second Amendment that Congress shall shall not impose any religion uh, or prevent the free, uh, oh, good Lord, I just brain fart. 
but the point here is there are yeah, there are there are limitations. You can't, for example, yell fire in a crowded theater. These are commonsensical. And the problem is that common sense has now been a victim. If we can apply common sense, that that means a reasonability. But quite frankly, the extremes of both parties in many ways are preventing that from happening. Um, and a lot of the Constitution is being misrepresented. I don't want to get into a debate with you about the Second Amendment, but I will say how no. do the state the Second Amendment start, a well-regulated militia. And unfortunately, that meaning has been uh, distorted beyond the original context. And of course, now people believe it's the ultimate right to bear arms. But I'll tell you, you can't have a nuclear weapon. You can't own a B-52. So there are limitations inherently. And the issue that's going to raise this in the future, I I predicted in my book, are drones. Supposing you're in a, a neighborhood where you need to have a bodyguard. Well, you could have a robot. Or you could have a drone, and that drone could be armed to protect you. Now, does the Second Amendment extend? I mean, in some places you have a right to carry a firearm. Does that extend to a drone? And can a drone shoot in self-defense? These are legal issues, I guarantee you, that are going to be raised sometime in the future, which are going to be terribly thorny because we can't even sort out the problems we have right now with firearms. Well, you know, I have to admit, I keep right in front of me. I used to keep it in my purse, but it's quite dog-eared and starting to fall apart. The Declaration of Independence and Constitution, and I've been carrying yep. this since 1976. <laughs> Honestly, true story. Good time And start. the part I was, you know, what I was messing up is Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. And that's where government gets it wrong. They keep on interfering and preventing our free exercise. Well, that, that's, that's always going to be a problem with government. But let me make a point here. The most trenchant line in the Declaration of Independence comes about five lines down and reads, when government becomes destructive, it is the right of mm-hmm. the people to alter or abolish it and establish a new one. That's what the Declaration of Independence says. And at some stage, some Americans are going to take that very, very seriously and use that in how they attack the government because <laughs> our government, in many, many ways, is becoming much more destructive than it is helpful. Uh, and as I said, this is a problem of the Republicans and Democrats and the polarization and the politicization of virtually every issue uh, where we just can't act civilly. I mean, I think of the days when you had real giants in the Congress. Uh, who would you say is a giant in the Congress or in the Senate today? There aren't that many, I don't think. You know, where are the Howard Bakers, or the Daniel Patrick Moynihan's? Uh, these are masters of the Mike Mansfield. You can go on and on and on and on. Um, where are they? Where are these great leaders? I don't happen to see them. Do you? Not really. Not really. You have some of them that make a good stance, but there's no power behind them. And that's that's what's missing. You would yeah. have like a Daniel Patrick Moynihan. He would have a whole caucus that would be behind him. So wherever he moved, they moved. Uh, the Tip O'Neills. Sure. You know. Absolutely. These were, but they were also men and women that could sit down with the opposing aisle like you saw often with Tip O'Neill do in the office of the president, sit down at a kitchen table, have a conversation, share a few beers or some shots of whiskey, and come to an understanding. 
All right, I'm going to take this issue, and you're going to back me on that one. You're going to take that one, and I'll give you backing on that. You know, and give and take, but it was always done with the best interest of the country first and foremost. I don't see that in this Congress or this Senate or this White House. No, I mean, in fact, Lyndon Johnson's closest friend was a Republican senator, and Johnson actually donated money to his campaign. We don't see much of that going on today. So I hope that some Democrats do not do donate to Liz Cheney's campaign. But what you're saying is that Congress. <laughs> oh, you know they already have. Well, well, part, well, the problem here is the fact that Congress comes into town Monday night, Tuesday morning, and leaves Thursday, and so they don't have an opportunity to bond with each other as they once did. And so I actually think that the working hours of Congress need to be readjusted to reality. But uh, that's obviously not going to happen. The biggest issue here, though, to go back to my book, people have got to understand that massive disruption is really the key enemy and the adversary we're facing. Yeah, Russia and China problems. We're not happy with uh, North Korea uh, or Iran. But massive attacks of disruption are going to do exactly that to our society. And that, imagine, for example, you no longer had a cell phone or the Internet or your electrical power was gone or your food and water supplies were stopped or your car didn't work, or you couldn't get gasoline because all the chips in the gas stations uh, were rendered immobile. Uh, These things are not only possible, they're happening, and we can deal with them. All we need is some common sense, and that's a a very, very big recommendation, which is uh, easy to say and difficult to implement. But this is what we're facing. And the irony is that as societies get more developed and advanced, they become more fragile and vulnerable and interdependent. I mean, you saw that when the Suez Canal was blocked for 10 days, and all of a sudden the supply chain stopped, or COVID shut down a chip plant. Uh, and now you're going to see huge, huge, huge food shortages because Ukraine is the fifth largest producer of wheat, and there ain't going to be no spring planting because the country's at war. So these things pile up, and this is going to be enormously disruptive. We can deal with it, but we have to recognize the problem and then understand that there, there are ways of resolving it. We've done none of that so far. Well- I would I would pile on to that what we're going to be seeing now with the truckers, with gasoline rising as high as it is. Yep. On average, you're talking about you know a thousand dollars a load, depending upon where. But if we're now going to pipe in or not pipe in, ship in oil, that's what uh, twenty dollars a barrel to ship it in, uh, or if you even have it trucked in, it's far more expensive than the pipeline. Pipeline you can do for two dollars a barrel. Instead, you're doing it 100 times well, there's, more? Well, there's a couple of things here. There, there's, there's certain mythologies about energy. First, there's no such thing as energy independence because energy is fungible. And whereas we may think that we can produce enough for ourselves, but that doesn't really make much difference if our trading partners don't have enough and their production stops. Second, we are not energy independent because we require a great deal more dirty or heavy crude than we produce. We produce light crude. That's why we need Venezuela and Saudi Arabia to make up the need for this stuff that we don't produce. So people have to take a more realistic view of what is and is not part of the whole energy cycle. We don't do that. The debate is too emotional, and I appreciate the truckers and anybody else who depend upon driving for a living. And I I suspect that government will probably come up with some kind of subsidy for the short term to help these people out. At least I think that that's being planned. But energy is far more complicated. And by the way, uh, when we are moving to electrical cars, has anybody thought through 
how much energy is going to be required to be able to recharge these millions and millions of cars, and does that really make us uh, less dependent on fossil fuel and on the production of dirty energy? That's an interesting question, and I haven't been able to resolve how it's answered, but I'm not sure it's a question that has gotten enough visibility yet. I cannot see a wind farm powering an entire city of electrical cars. Besides that, where are they going to get well, rare sure. earth metals? Through China. Who's going to be end up manufacturing them? Going to come through China. Now, China comes back into this picture, not only in the Ukraine because of their duplicitous uh, actions and comments, uh, but they're now hooking up with Saudi Arabia and want to trade for oil, not in dollars, which is the traditional you know, uh, finance, uh, they want to do it in the end, and that's going to disrupt another massive attack of disruption on our economy, on our on our dollar. We have gained a huge amount because we are the reserve currency, and there's been no question that China would like to replace us. But let me make a larger point, and 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 by this, I'm not I'm not making any kind of a positive thing about either China or Putin, but we pushed Putin around for 20 years. We disrespected him, rather like the battered wife who takes it for 20 years and then decides she's going to put a bullet in her husband's head. And we've done that. We've treated Putin badly. Now, that, that, that is not a man for what he's doing. But we have to realize we're sometimes part of the problem. We have done the same thing with China. In 2011, the Obama administration made this huge pivot to Asia because of the Chinese threat. And we have disrespected China. I have to tell you that the Trump uh, tariffs were not only ridiculous, they're being paid for by American citizens. And so from China's view, America has been a large problem as far as it's concerned. Now, China, as I said, has huge issues. But, for example, when uh, the Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, went up to uh, Anchorage, Alaska last year in what I call the Bake Alaska Summit with China, we insulted them publicly. Even though you may be dealing with an enemy, you don't do that. That's not a way to get negotiations. You're out for an end game where you want to achieve something, and insulting is not the way. You made a point about Biden giving a list of of to-dos and not-to-dos to to Xi. That's ludicrous. That's a huge error. If we want to know how to deal with China, go back to Nixon and Kissinger. Remember, we had fought a war with China in Korea, and the Chinese Mm -hmm. were helping the North Vietnamese in Vietnam. Yet Kissinger spent hours with Mao and Joe uh, in lengthy, lengthy conversations to create trust. That's the way you do diplomacy. And quite frankly, since George H.W. Bush, we have lacked that in the diplomacy. And I I criticize both Republican and Democratic presidents for being very, very heavy-handed in the way that they have sort of tried to impose America's will where it just doesn't work. Well, if anyone is old enough, they remember Kissinger and the ping pong. uh, Oh, good Lord. Diplomacy. Diplomacy. Ping pong, yeah, ping pong diplomacy. Yeah. And I, we were laughing at the time, you know, thinking, what, what are they doing? But I think in one way, I, I disagree with them opening up China that soon, if they held off a little bit longer, because China was not as powerful an economy as it is now. We could have held off just a little bit longer and been able to control the situation that is there now a little bit better, I think. But then that's just my personal no, opinion. No the, Soviet, no, the Soviet, no, the Soviet Union was seen as too much of a threat. Uh, Nixon was really worried, and he felt the best way was to recognize China. And indeed, it worked. It began the beginning of the end of the Soviet Union, 
even though that country was <laughs> ruled by a, a gerontocracy. I mean, I don't know how many times I would listen to Bill Colby when he was uh, uh, head director of the Central Intelligence Agency telling classes at the National War College where I was teaching, well, it's very serious. Brezhnev has six more months. Well, Brezhnev had six more years. <laughs> but the point was mm. that it was a gerontocracy. Now you have, if not one man rule, you have uh, a very, very brittle rule. And that is not good for anybody because it can come unhinged. I was not one who thought that Putin had gone off his rocker. Um, but the speech he gave yesterday about spitting flies out. And, oh, yeah. <laughs> and about dealing with people. Like a midge uh, out of my mouth. Is, geez, yep. It's, it's, a bit, it's a bit worrying. Now, he may be trying to take the Madman Act a bit too far and frightening us. Having said that, I would not take his warnings of nuclear war uh, with too much, uh, too seriously. He's not going to do that for a number of reasons. But one of my concerns is that we've allowed Putin to have the initiative. And as I said earlier, we have the capacity to take out his entire logistics network, um, which would stop that attack in Ukraine. We can do that. I'm not saying we should, but it's certainly something that we should make known because we've got to take the initiative away from Mr. Putin. Um, And so far, we've not done a very good job of doing that. Ukrainians, on the other hand, enough cannot be said about their courage and steadfastness. It's, a, it's an inspiration, but inspirations aren't doing much to help Ukraine. You know, what, what struck me, because the midge in the mouth bit, you know, kind of like, okay. And then when he started talking about the, the purity of the people, talking about the ethnic purity of the people, it harkened back into Germany pre-World sure. War II, harkened back to Stalin's programs, and that that I found more frightening than anything else, the fact that he was threatening yeah, to purify the Russian race. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And he's doing that purposely, uh, <clears throat> frighten us, tell the Russians, don't fool around with me, I'm serious. That's one of the reasons why the Russian majority, the majority of Russians so far believe these deep fakes, all this nonsense uh, about what's happening in Ukraine. And changing that is not going to be very, very easy. I'm delighted that Arnold Schwarzenegger made that tape because I suspect he's pretty, fun. he's pretty popular in Russia, but he's not as fearsome even as a Terminator as Vladimir Putin is to his public. Well, you know, I, I want to go on. It's not necessarily a lighter side, but something that had me look at, God bless, my mom's going to turn 90 July 4th. And I think she goes further right than I do a lot of times. But Jen Psaki was up there talking to a reporter, a White House press uh, reporter um, with Gray TV. And he was asking her about the weapons that were being authorized. And she was cutting him off and he was cutting her off. And he was asking if they were defensive, not offensive. Well, I'm looking at her and I said, any weapon can be defensive or offensive. So what's with the semantics here? I mean, let the Ukrainians, you send them over, how they use it, that's how they use it. But it could be used either way. So what's the big deal? <laughs> Just what's well, the, the big, big deal? deal? Here, the, the big deal here is that, uh, you know, I, I, I have admiration for Jen. Uh, I think that she's doing a, as good a job under the circumstances. Any press secretary has this. The White House is under unbelievable pressure 24 hours a day. 
And when do you relax? When do you blow off steam? And I think John Kirby at the Pentagon uh, does a terrific job, but the Pentagon in many ways is easier uh, because all he's got to do is talk about the war in Ukraine, and immediately he's got everybody on his side for obvious reasons. But the White House is a pressure cooker, and uh, no matter who's president, uh, there's not enough bandwidth to accommodate everything that they need to accommodate, and people make mistakes, and that's what happens under pressure. And this is true, uh, certainly when you have a 24-7 media that's covering everything, and a a mispronunciation or a mistake in language uh, takes on huge proportions that really exceed the mistake. But that's what happens when we're living in this uh, huge fishbowl called the 24-7 media universe. You know, um, I I loved – I started – some through the book, like I said, I haven't been able to read it because I only got it late yesterday. And in there, you start to quote uh, different things on the cover, not the cover, but in the first few pages. Yeah. And you quote the Declaration of Independence where you recited before, when government becomes destructive, it is the right of right. the people to alter or abolish it and establish a new one. And then it goes on to say, you know, when people are prone to being uh, downtrodden before they finally decide to stand up. Then you go into Abraham Lincoln, the famous one, a house divided among itself cannot stand. Then I love this one from Charlie Wilson's War. We effed that up the end game. <laughs> yeah. And then you quote Putin. And I, we have uh, bring not Charlie only new Wilson, uh, people. Sh- I hope they know it. He was a congressman uh, that... Uh, uh, took action. It was what Afghanistan or is it Pakistan? I think yeah, I know. Can I tell you a story about Charlie? Go ahead. Uh, Charlie. Charlie was a was a uh, graduate of the Naval Academy class of '58. In his fitness report, his commanding officer said, "This is the best officer I've ever seen at sea, and the worst I've ever seen ashore." And that was Charlie. <laughs> you could not. Tom Hanks could not play Charlie Wilson. Only Charlie could. He had. He, had, he only had lovely young girls as staff, one of whom was so young she was called date bait or rate bait. Um, and this is Wilson, larger than life. Uh, he engineered about a half a billion dollars of aid single-handedly to go to Afghanistan and the Mujahideen and the Saudis doing another half billion dollars. But I, was, I knew Charlie. And I'll tell you a story about Charlie. In the old days, uh, David Frost, you may remember, who was a great British mm-hmm. uh, commentator, this was the week that was. David had a show on uh, uh, TV AM in the morning. And this is long enough ago that uh, they would fly you over by Concord. So Charlie and I, if people don't remember Concord, Concord went Mach 2.1 and you could fly to England, London, in three and a half hours. It was a magnificent right. airplane. Uh, anyway, I found myself on the Concord flying over to do this program with Charlie. Charlie drank a bottle of bourbon on the way out. And we went on television. He was terrific. I could never understand it. It was so good that Frost said, you guys got to come back. So two months later, we're on the same airplane, same concert, going back to London from Washington. Charlie drinks almost two bottles of bourbon. (laughs) (laughs) He was an extraordinary, extraordinary guy, and you can't define him, but he was larger than life. When he was a kid, he was 13, but he had a driver's license in Texas. His neighbor poisoned his dog. His neighbor was also the local councilman and was up for election. And so Charlie managed to go to the part of town where most of the Hispanics live and drove them to the voting booth. So they threw this guy out 
and this guy lost the election by 25 votes, and Wilson had driven some 60 or 50, uh, 50 or 60 Hispanics to go to the voting booth to get rid of this guy. This was Charlie, and Charlie, Charlie Wilson's War is just a fabulous book, and it almost, it almost describes Wilson, but you had to know him, and I don't think there'll be another one like him for a very long time. That may not be a bad thing, by the way. <laughs> No, we do need another Charlie Wilson. And I actually do remember that interview on David Frost uh, because when they were talking about making the movie, they were playing those clips. Uh, and I, I seem to vaguely remember watching that. Uh, I was living with my parents at the time. Uh, my father and I would sit on the back porch to catch the news and catch all the other stuff like this. So, yeah, that brings back memories. But uh, you also well, have a quote from Putin. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, I do. I was going to say before you get to Putin's quote about technology, uh, David Frost's uh, co-anchor was Sally Burton, who was Richard Burton's last wife. Um, mm-hmm. And Sally was a knockout. And I had to keep kicking Charlie under the table because all he was doing was staring and ogling at Sally Burton during most of the interview. It's really quite funny. <laughs> well, he had a reputation, that's for sure. He definitely did. Um, and and well, the troops loved him. Great Absolutely. Well, you know, this this really does explain Putin and his mindset because the quote you used about technological advances, he said, yep. bring not only new possibilities to improve life, but new problems and dangers. And I think that also would um, highlight Z's outlook. You know, you're going to offer something in one hand to make it look delicious, but on the other hand, you've got the knife. Yeah, of course, of course. And if you go, I, I, list, uh, I list his millennia speech before he became acting president as, as 2000 dawned on January 1st, but also his Munich speech in, in 2007 at the Munich Security Conference when he laid out his arguments about the United States being a unipower, and a unipolar power, and how this had to be dealt with. And he laid out his roadmap. And, of course, we ignored it, as too often we tend to do these kinds of things. But it was self-evident where Putin was heading, although, as I said, I predicted he was not going to go into Ukraine, but I flew a bit too close to the sun and got that wrong, which surprised me not that I got it wrong, but that he actually went into Ukraine when this is not in his best interest and will prove to be disastrous for Russia, and I think for Putin, but not soon enough. Well, you know, your book, The Fifth Horseman and Nomad, How Massive Attacks of Disruption Become the Looming Existential Danger to a Divided Nation and the world at large, which people can get on Amazon and several other places. It's uh, just a little over 300 pages, but in Chapter 8, 9, and 10 is your three-step way to reclaim our nation and our resistance. Uh, you break it down, you know, exactly what is MAD, and you have where you give all these things like the coronavirus and climate and cyber and social media. I mean, cyber attacks alone is, is completely disruptive. Remember just – was it last year or so that we had on the eastern seaboard? It's here, especially in the south, where they Colonial attacked pipeline. the pipeline. Yes, yes and yep. shut us down. So, sure. And then you turn around and talk about dragons and bears, about Russia and China and the collision course. And you're also saying that we're going to go from pandemic to pe- pandemic. I think because our leaders, the swamp, saw how many Americans were cowed by these. Uh, executive order mandates 
that maybe they, it's a way to keep on controlling the American people. And that is something that's scary, and I think we need to control that and uh, say no more. Well, I have a different view on some of that uh, than possibly you. Uh, in New York City in March of 1947, there was one outbreak um, of the equivalent of, 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 of the plague. Um, and within six weeks, 6.3 million Americans were vaccinated in New York City almost overnight. We forget that. And when I was growing up, the fear of every parent was polio. And all of us had our soft shots. So there was no question then of the need for immunization. And quite frankly, I can make a case, not America, all Americans agree, agree with, but you have a social responsibility to be vaccinated because if you're not and you contract the disease, you can, you can infect other people. Just for example, there are mandatory things you have to do. You need a driver's license. You want to fly an airplane, you need a license. You pay your taxes, you wear seatbelts, all these other things that are in positions. And I think in the case of public safety, unless there are genuine grounds, medical, medical grounds, or there may be some religious exemptions, but very few, I think that when you have a situation and you have a safe vaccine, that it becomes mandatory and people just have to take it, just like they have to do other mandatory things uh, in life. Now, having said that, <clears throat> there were huge problems with masks in 1918, 1920, as you'll read in my book. So a lot of this stuff is not new. And what we're seeing right now uh, coronavirus uh, has mutated again, and so there's a new variety of Omicron. And do not be surprised if we get hit with another wave. Now, how good the vaccines are, uh, I hope they are. I had actually had a fourth shot, but <clears throat> it's the only way to prevent uh, what is clearly preventable. But I don't know that we've learned. And what troubles me, quite frankly, are we prepared for COVID-20, 21, 22? What have we put in place? And I see that Congress has eliminated a great deal of money that the administration had set aside for buying necessary things to cope with another pandemic. But we'll see what happens. Well, that's a conversation for a, another show, uh, because as it stands now, my doctor told me no, uh, told my mom no. And then when I found out what was in it and how it was manufactured, my faith told me no. And if you say my body, my choice, and you're pro-abortion, but yet you can't let me say my body, my choice for the jab, there's a hypocrisy there that I, I just can't quite swallow. But like I said, that's for another show. But, that is for a completely another show. But, the, you know, but Harlan, it has been... With, with, with yeah, with contradictions. But it has been such a pleasure having you on. We definitely have to have you back on. I will read your book and get you to come back on, and we will be discussing that and see how we can help our nation get out of way, this read, hole we dug. And this Go book ahead. will help, by the way, read this in 2029. And the White I House that. is a concrete bunker, <laughs> like an iceberg, because the original White House will have been destroyed by a drone attack in 2027. It lays out a future uh, that could be the future, and it really is meant to get people's attention to see where we could, and I say could, not will, be headed. Well, thank you so much, uh, Harlan. And like I said, thank where you. can this people great find you? I look forward to chatting with you. Thank you. All right, but I put a link up on there to the book as well as to the Atlantic Council so that people can actually see your work out there, too. Uh, I, I write weekly for The Hill and for United, United Press International, 
on Wednesdays, Monday for the Hill. And on Twitter, I'm at Harlan K. Oman. And quite frankly, I'm so old, I don't use Facebook <laughs> and don't know how. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you and enjoy your weekend, sir. All right. Good. Thank you very much. Pleasure. All Bye. right. Har- Harlan Olin. You can find him up at Atlantic Council uh, on Twitter and on The Hill. Let's bring in my dear friend. Always love to have him here. Always a pleasure to have him here. Mark Tapp, Scott of the Epoch or Epic Times. I'll drive him a little nuts. And also the founder of Hill Faith. Good afternoon, Mark. How are you today? I am great, Anne. How are you guys? Oh, we're just hanging in there, just surviving our, our St. Patty's Day after you chided me that you were enjoying your Irish whiskey. <laughs> oh, yeah. You, you do realize I was kidding when I said that. Oh, yes, I do. That's why I sent you the smile back. <laughs> I knew that. <laughs> I was actually eyeing my bar at the, at the time I was reading it and going, do I have a good Irish whiskey over there? I've got a bourbon. I've got a scotch. <laughs> They'll do. <laughs> anyway, um, I'm going to throw some things at you that have been going on. And uh, just two days ago, uh, Trump had made a public announcement uh, to the Washington Examiner that he will not take Mike Pence as his running mate. Now, I don't know why anyone should be surprised. Do you? No, I, I frankly wasn't surprised. Uh, I'm, the only thing I was surprised about is that something uh, along that line hadn't happened sooner. Um, you know, politics makes strange bedfellows, and that was one of them. Yeah, it, it was. And uh, it seemed like Pence really stood by him for most of the presidency, but it came down to that final bit about tallying the votes and certifying them that that's where they split. And yet still Trump in this article in the Washington Examiner still said, well, you know, I haven't talked to him, but, you know, I'm open to talk. So that I found very interesting, you know, because then again, that's Trump's personality. You're either completely out or we'll see. I found that yeah. very, very interesting. Yeah, Trump is still the um, odds-on favorite to, you know, get the nomination in 24. Um, Mike Pence is a great guy. Uh, I've I've had conversations with him, and I have a lot of respect for him. He is a Reagan conservative. Um, I was frankly a little surprised when um, um, Trump turned to him to be his vice president, but um, we'll see. I suspect that uh, we've not heard the last of Mike Pence in, in American politics. No, I don't think so at all. Um, I think, did he go up to Heritage? I'm, I'm, something tells me in the back of my mind he went to Heritage or he's doing some sort of a pack. I, don't, I forget which. But you know, one of the other things is we've got the uh, 2024 RNC convention coming, uh, and they've narrowed it down to two cities. One is Nashville, and the other yeah. one, Milwaukee, of all places, Milwaukee. Yeah. yeah. Now, I can see Nashville centrally located, but Milwaukee? Well, you know, it's, it's interesting because Wisconsin is trending Republican, and uh, it, Milwaukee makes sense from that perspective. If you uh, are concerned about um, carrying Wisconsin, which a Republican running for president has pretty much got to, um, 
it, it makes sense from that that perspective. But Nashville is the middle of the South. It's um, you know one of the thriving cities in the South, and the South is the heart of the Republican Party these days. So I will be surprised if they don't go Nashville. That's interesting. That's interesting. So we'll see what happens, you know, but I'm glad that, you know, they already have picked out too because they were looking at Salt Lake City. But, you know, mm-hmm. you've got the gambling and everything else that's too much where someone might just get in trouble, you think? <laughs> you think someone you might mean, get in trouble? You mean in Las Vegas? <laughs> well, it's still Nevada. Come on. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's all over the state. So, you know, there's always that potential. But, you know, um, yeah. to shift a little bit, uh, we've got uh, this uh, judge, I can't pronounce her first name, Catania Brown-Jackson, that uh, Biden mm-hmm. has selected for the Supreme Court. And originally, now, Lindsey Graham, or as I call him, Lamesy Graham-Nisty, is my senator. And he originally said, when Biden took office, like, whatever he whatever he puts up, it's just courtesy that we vote for that person. He seems to have done right. a huge flip-flop in saying, I don't think so. What's going on here? Is there something I missed? And did Lindsey Graham change his stripes once again? Well, <clears throat> two things going on. Number one, there is another judge whose name escapes me at the moment. That Michelle for Child. whatever reason, yeah, um, Senator Graham was very much uh, in favor of, and he was quite apparently quite upset when Biden did not pick that uh, that judge. The other thing is, you know, Jackson made <clears throat> excuse me a, a really positive impression when Biden announced her. She talked about her faith, and she struck a very moderate tone uh, at the White House. And because she's black and because she did strike that moderate tone, I suspect that there's a lot of Republicans who you would otherwise assume would be inclined to vote no because it's Biden making the nomination uh, or might be having second thoughts about that. But then they really started digging into her record And I think come Monday when the confirmation hearing starts, there are going to be some things brought forth that uh, you would not expect to find uh, in the record of a judge who sounded as moderate as she did uh, when her nomination was announced. Uh, I think this hearing is going to be surprising in some respects. I think it's going to be much more intense than, than anybody thinks. Yeah, I, I agree with that one because Josh Hawley did a little digging, and they're actually having a problem getting the court systems to release her records so that they could know what type of ruling she had. So they're starting to trickle out. I don't know if they'll – I doubt if they'll all be there at the start of the hearing, but her her stance with sex offenders, and some of this is very, very disturbing, where sex – especially pedophiles – those are char- or those caught with child pornography, extremely, extremely lenient, doing a less than minimum sentences or just the minimum sentences in many cases when the book should have yeah. been thrown at them. And these are some heavy, heavy, hardcore offenders. That in yeah. itself is disturbing. So if you can't protect our children, how are you going to protect our nation? 
Well, you know, the the trend in our country um, in recent decades has been to steadily liberalize the laws regarding sexual conduct. And people have been predicting for a long time that sooner or later, if that trend continues, um, there will be pushes to legalize what you and I understand to be pedophilia. And there are folks in the legal community who uh, are sympathetic to that, and Jackson apparently is one of these people, judging by her, um, by her decisions. I, I'm going to be very interested to see how she responds when she is asked about this, and she will be asked about it, and very likely she will not be able to, um, you know, give a, uh, a political answer, an evasive answer. She's going to have to talk about the, um, the substance of her decisions. And that's going to be difficult. Yeah, so, you know, when I had one of my state senators debate with me about the Equal Rights Act, and in it they defined the equal rights of the sex. Well, the sex in 1970 meant something completely different than what it means today. We would think biological gender when you say sex in the 1970s. Today, you could be pedophilia, necrophilia, and every other philia out there. Hey, that's my preferred sex. So I can see that being twisted so easily so that anything goes. Anything goes. And that was not the original purpose of the Equal Rights Act, but we're seeing right here and now with this one judge that she's saying, well, it's just sex. So it's no big deal. The fact that it's with an underage, unprotected minor who might not even know. I think at one point, one of the offenders had uh, attacked some, a little girl, a little child of only six years old. Really? That's horrendous. Yeah, it's horrendous. But you know, uh, and this this shouldn't surprise any of us because America has been having this discussion for many many years about is there absolute truth or not, and are there moral standards that everybody is obligated to um, to abide by, and our intellectual elite in this country, uh, many of them do not believe that there are moral absolutes, and they think truth is a very relative thing. Uh, Your truth is good for you, and mine is good for me. And once you accept that assumption, then standards such as um, marriage and what is uh, acceptable sexual conduct and what is not, you've, you've, you've undermined the foundation of those standards and once that happens you know it's anything goes well you know i said that when the supreme court did a ruling on the definition of marriage i said government has no right to step into a religious practice that violates the first amendment where you're now creating a religion or defining my religion my religion says marriage is between one man and a woman but government offers you civil unions, domestic unions, so you can be whatever you want. Just don't force my church to perform that ceremony. But by saying marriage, yeah. you're going to try to force, which they proved to have already done. 
trying to force yeah. different faiths to perform a marriage ceremony against their beliefs. So now they said, we can get away with it with marriage. Where else can we go with it? And that is what I'm yeah. seeing here. Yeah. And, and they will go wherever they think they can, they, can, they can go, unfortunately. Curtis, you started to say something. Yeah, knowing that we have all these issues and the VP is just a heartbeat away from the president. You mentioned earlier that you were surprised that um, Trump picked Pence as a vice, mm-hmm. you know, as VP. If he runs again, which I'm sure he will, what kind of um, VP should he he pick as a running mate? And why were you surprised at Pence? Well, the reason I was surprised at Pence is because um, Pence is very much a, an establishment Republican conservative, and Trump is not. <laughs> um, and I expected him to, to go with someone that was um, um, less identified with, with the Republican establishment. Um, and I'm not being critical of Pence when I say that. Um, you know, he was when he was in the, the House of Representatives, he was the chairman of the Republican conference. Um, and his voting record is very, very conservative. He's, he's a good conservative. What Trump will do in 24, I, you know, I have no idea. My guess is it will not be the kind of traditional pick where you try to reach out to an opposing faction within the party to, to bring about some unity, because I don't think Trump really cares about that too much. So it'll be a surprise. Uh, it wouldn't surprise me if it is uh, a black or Hispanic conservative. Um, Trump has made some real inroads uh, with uh, black and Hispanic voters. So it wouldn't surprise me if he went in that direction. But frankly, with Donald Trump, nothing surprises me. (laughs) Well, I always like to say, you know, what Trump does, it's like the way we Italians cook spaghetti. You want to know if it's, it's how it's going to be done? You take it, you throw it against the wall. What sticks, you keep. What falls, you throw out. So it's like throwing yeah. the spaghetti against the wall to see if it's it's, it's done and they're ready for it. So yeah. I, that's the best way to explain it. Yeah. You know, Ann, the, the thing about your show, being on your show, is I find my 15 minutes just goes by really quickly. Um, <laughs> and I, you know, I apologize, but we're at the end of my time again. <laughs> oh, so we'll have to talk to you again in another two weeks. You got it. Uh, listen, you guys have a great weekend. All, All right. right. You too. You check, too. Check out Mark Taft at the Epic Time. And God bless. Have, enjoy your weekend, Mark. All right. Mark Taft Scott. Um, uh, there's so much more we have to talk about, but uh, we've got another 10, 15 minutes before our next guest calls in. And I came across this one, and this is an alarming uh, trend. I'm finding that the Democrats have found the power of the courts. And what they're doing is they're going after uh, uh, established termed Republicans, uh, those that they feel are a threat to their seats, uh, and they're suing them. And they're finding different reasons in which to sue these senators and representatives to prevent them from getting on the ballot. And this is from the Epic Times, written by Matthew Van Dum. Um, and he's talking about Senator Ron Johnson. And 
Let me just go through the article, and that way you'll understand what I'm talking about. Democratic activists in Washington have filed a suit in federal court arguing that a pro-Trump senator and two pro-Trump congressmen should be barred from office for speaking out on 2020 election irregularities. So now free speech is is something to say that, you know, you should not, you, you can't run for Congress or the Senate. So election irregularities and allegedly attempting to manipulate the congressional certification of the presidential election votes. Now, because they're questioning the validity of some of the votes, that's their job to question the validity of the, the, the votes before you certify them. So if you don't know that they're valid, how can you certify something you don't even know anything about? But that suddenly makes it illegal. Wisconsin Republican lawmakers targeted by the suit are two-term Ron Johnson and two-term Tom Tiffany and freshman Rep. Scott Fitzgerald. All are seeking re-election this November. The suit claims the lawmakers cannot serve in Congress because, and this is something that has not been used since the Civil War, the disqualification clause in Section 3 of the 14th Amendment forbids it. That rarely invoked constitutional provision was enacted in the wake of the Civil War to keep former Confederates out of Congress. Now, former Confederates actively took up arms to split the Union and create a new country. All these men did saying, well, I'm not trusting the election votes. I'm not trusting this election. Let's take a look at the certification. That is their duty and their job. Johnson, of course, dismissed the lawsuit telling the Epic Times it's total nonsense. And he goes on to say, Democrats have ignored the summer 2020 riots and relentlessly used January 6, 2021 as a political cudgel. He said this in an email statement. Now they've used January 6 to file a frivolous lawsuit against me similar to the one dismissed by a court last week. So this is not first time they're doing this. Uh, the lawsuit claims the lawmakers, quote, use their public positions of authority to illegally foment an atmosphere meant to intimidate and pressure Vice President Mike Pence. Now, remember, Mike Pence certified. He did not count to anyone pressuring him. So I don't know where they get this from. And Congress to take actions inconsistent with the facts and their duties under the Electoral Count Act and the U.S. Constitution. But there was something like 10,000 ballots mysteriously were not counted in Texas that they just uncovered. Uh, We had a truckload of ballots that were driven from Long Island, New York to Atlanta, Georgia, that suddenly disappeared. So I would say there are questions to this election. Whether it'll be decertified, I sincerely doubt it. Are we stuck? Yeah. But have these lawmakers accepted the fact that, you know, Biden is now president? Yeah, and they're working around that. So I don't know where they get any sort of an insurrection idea. Well, like everything with the left, they they manufacture what's not really there. And I really think they don't have a leg to stand on. Um, I'm pretty sure that all the discrepancies with the 2020 um, vote can be proven. And I've seen documentation and documentaries on the subject. And not only that, 
I thought it was um, something the judges frowned upon bringing frivolous lawsuits to the courts repeatedly. You know. Well, so I don't they think tried it's going to this, go far. Well, they tried this before. They tried to take out mm-hmm. two sitting federal lawmakers off the 2020 ballot for their pro-Trump activities, which was Representative Jim Banks, Republican out of Indiana, and yeah. Representative Madison Thorne, Republican out of North Carolina. Both failed, but Cawthorn's case is under appeal. So this was filed in Wisconsin by 10 plaintiffs. They're all, quote, voters. So you know the Democratic operatives. So they said in the complaint, engaged in overt acts in furtherness of a conspiracy meant to foment public distrust in the outcome of the 2020 election. Well, there's a large majority of Americans that disagree with the 2020 elections and question its validity. And does that make that half of America are seditious? I don't think so. They said further that it undermines the rule of law and assists an insurrection against the United States with the illegal goal of reversing the results of the election that made Joseph R. Biden the 46th president of the United States. Yeah, the, the legal challenge is being oh here here's the best part. The legal challenge is being underwritten by the Menaqua Brewing Company, Super PAC. In a March thirteenth statement on the left wing political action committee's website, founder Kirk Bangstead estimates the lawsuit could cost three hundred thousand dollars to fight over the next six months. Bangstead is the owner of the Menaqua Brewing Company, makers of quote progressive beers such as Fiden Beer, oh yum, Bernie Brew, oh here's your socks, folks, AOC IPA, and the Filibuster Ale. I mean, how do you keep a straight face? How do you keep a straight face when reading something like this? I mean, if they can't fairly beat them at the voting booth, if they don't have a platform that people can feel comfortable with, if they've got nothing else out there but to use a baseball bat over your head and cause you to be afraid to make the straw man boogeyman out of the middle of nowhere, then then there's no way they're going to get back in office. But they have no other way to do this. So they take the best candidates that could run against them and try to get them kicked off the ballot for in and inane ideas. That's all they got. That's all they got, I think, folks. I don't see anything coming out up there. And well, I'm seeing more and more people uh, changing their, their, their political stance, like your cousin. Well, my sister as well. But the thing is, the Democrat well, leadership is in, uh, and, I, and I got a cousin too. Um, they are in a desperate way right now. And they can see that their policies are turning their own supporters against them. And I'm sure they do a lot of um, polling and whatnot. And it doesn't look good for them. And, of course, that doesn't mean we should, you know, sit back and relax. But we should keep the pressure on. And and we should, and what I do with my, my liberal friends, I tell them, look, you know, how you loving this economy? Because all of this is under your your presidential administration, um, we didn't have all these high gas prices under Trump. 
and I would tell them about how well the economy was. And they had they they really have no choice but to agree with me, you know. So um, yeah. I see positive change coming, and this may really impact the Democrat Party for maybe not years, but decades to come. Because if we have such a powerful uh, midterm turnover and we regain the House and the Senate by larger margins than we could even imagine, you know, um, we just have to hope that we have people in there that know how to act like they won. As Rush used to Mm -hmm. say, (laughs) we get into a position of um, um, majority and we we start, we don't know how to act as though we won. (laughs) So, but the Dems do, the Libs do. Oh yeah, mm. they take. I mean, they got plans already in the drawer. All they have to do is pull them out. Yeah. Well, we've got about three minutes until our next guest, and um, we're, we're we're seeing also finally some cojones coming up. Uh, Rand Paul, a Kentucky legislator, has presented a, an amendment that would completely remove Dr. Fauci's setting as a supervisor of the National Institute of Allergic Reaction and Transmittable Disease, the NIAID. And he has claimed that no person ought to weld as much power as Fauci. Now, you've got to remember, think back in your head, watching uh, Rand Paul questioning Dr. Fauci and Fauci insulting Dr. Paul to his face. You're not a medical doctor. You know... Can you anyone be more insulting? So uh, he would. Yeah. Uh, but uh, what Paul is, is saying is that the NIAID would be then broken down to three separate uh, research study institutes nationwide, each one with its own director, consisting of the National Institute of Sensitive Diseases, National Institute of Infectious Diseases and the National Institute of Immunologic Conditions. Now, here's the kicker. Um, It's going to be appointed by the president, verified by the Senate, you know, assent and confirm, to a five-year term. No longer a lifetime job. That's good. I want to see that happen. Yeah, me too. Um... Where do we go from here? <laughs> I tell you. <laughs> and with the, just the well, thing, what we do we, is we, we, still got we turn over the house and get this passed. Yeah, and that's our only saving grace. If we can regain control of Congress, we can slow these people and their agenda down. That's the only saving grace because this is just under two years. And to, to think that we can do this another two and a half years, we'd be destroyed by then. So we have to win the midterms and um, stop stop this agenda. Stop it dead in its tracks. Now, if, if there we go. My computer just cooperated. We've got, we want to welcome to the show first time to our show, so she has no idea what she's in for, what a bunch <laughs> of weirdos we are. I want to welcome from the Heritage Foundation, Patty Jane Geller. Uh, she's a policy analyst of nuclear deterrence and missile defense for the Center for National Defense at Heritage. Good afternoon, Patty Jane, and welcome to the Insane Asylum. Hi, thanks so much for having me on the show. I'm looking forward to it. 
Uh, we have been having nonstop fun. We had earlier uh, Dr. Harlan Ullman, because he's got his new book out about mad, massive attacks of disruption. Just had Mark Tapscott on from the Epic Times. He's a sweetheart. I've known him for years. And so now we got you. And holy cow, what are we in for? I mean, um, we have Putin out there rattling the sabers, uh, freaking uh-huh. everyone out. Thing from Dr. Ullman and from reading your articles, you don't think he's going to use nuclear. He'll use alternatives. Am I reading your articles correctly? So my assessment is that the chances of Putin using nuclear weapons, they're not very high. I think doing so would not be in his interest. Um, But the chances aren't zero either. And even a non-zero chance of the use of a nuclear weapon is something to take very seriously. Um, You know, Russia deploys thousands of nuclear weapons. They have uh, what we call tactical nuclear weapons, which are um, smaller in range and have smaller explosions that are meant to be used on the battlefield. Um, and the concern is, while we're not at this, doesn't seem like we're at this point yet, if Putin sees that he's not meeting his goals to uh, seize Ukrainian cities or topple the government, he might resort to the use of one of these smaller uh, tactical nuclear weapons to try to compel the Ukrainians to surrender. Now, if he were to do that, NATO should step in because that, that is the biggest taboo ever out there, to use a weapon of mass mass destruction, like a nuclear weapon, even if it's restricted to a battlefield. And the way he's hitting these apartment buildings and hospitals and children's shelters, there's no guarantee he's going to hit the target, or if that's the actual target he's gonna, he wants to hit. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we've had a taboo against using nuclear weapons or weapons of mass destruction for the last 75 years, and even the use of one of these Small tactical nuclear weapons would cause uh, severe destruction. And, yeah, even if it hits its target, there would be serious fallout on civilians. Um, And, you know, what we have to remember here is that Putin manufactured this war. There is no threat to Russia. Uh, This is a war of choice on Ukraine. It's illegal and it's immoral. And the use of a nuclear weapon, there would be no possible way to justify the use of the world's most dangerous weapon. You know, um Watching Newsmax, you know, last night uh, as I was doing my notes, I was surprised because mm-hmm. I know we went into the SMART Treaty, and it was, should have been mutual disarmament, but that didn't happen. For every nine or ten we dismantled, they only took out one. But where right. we're falling behind is where they're building ten, and we're only building one. So we're way behind the curve on the nuclear uh, option, but also on smart bombs. I mean, mm-hmm. there's a difference because we're, we're good with smart bombs. They're not, right. which begs to differ. Is that why they're hitting all these civilian targets? Because they're not using smart bombs. Well, you know, we it seems to me that Putin is aiming for civilian targets on purpose. Uh, originally, Russia started out by strike, just fighting the Ukrainian military, but Uh, It it seems like Putin thought he'd be able to win this war in a couple of days. Clearly, the Ukrainians have been resisting, and it seems like it's his strategy to now target uh, civilian infrastructure. We've seen hospitals, we've seen schools, uh, hundreds of children killed um, as a strategy to to force Ukraine to give up and say the damage is too much, which is 
you know, absolutely morally reprehensible, and that's why we're hearing claims that Putin is should be charged with war crimes. Um, you know, again, Ukraine is posing a threat to Russia. They don't need to. Oh, Patty, uh, Patty, Jaden, you're breaking up. Did we, did we lose you? Yeah, I'm, I'm here. Can you hear me? Yeah, we got you. You broke up. The last part of what you were saying just completely disappeared. <laughs> the wonders oh, of cell phones and modern technology. <laughs> I know we can make nuclear weapons, but <laughs> um, yeah, I was, I was just uh, re- reiterating, um, you know, Putin's strategy to. Uh, bomb and um, use weapons at civilian populations to try to get Ukraine to surrender. It's, it's morally reprehensible, and that's why uh, we're hearing calls for Putin to be charged with war crimes. Now, they're on the National Security Council of the U.N., uh, so I don't see that in the foreseeable future unless the U.N. votes him off the Security Council. And again, I don't see that in the you know, immediate future. Uh, but right. Putin continues to fail as he is now with his troops that are mired down. He's losing generals. He's also losing senior officers of leadership. Uh, He recently fired the uh, general that was the architect of the invasion. Um, Mm -hmm. We're seeing pieces fall around him, like a lot of his support. I I can think of the most iconic image that told me there was a problem here where all of his aides are at one end of this really long table, he's at the yeah. other end, and all I could think was et tu brute, you know, or Hitler being bombed in the bunker. You don't leave your general right. standing too close to you because you just might get stabbed or blown up. It's very curious uh, imagery I'm thinking of. Yeah, for sure. Um, one thing to remember is, um, you know, a dictator, his strategy, Putin's strategy that he gets from Stalin and back in the day is to purge those who might dissent to whatever he has to say. And, you know, we're worried that he's already gotten rid of the people who might disagree with him. Uh, and he's surrounding himself with people who, who won't tell him bad news, who tells him what he wants to hear. Um, you know, maybe those, maybe they're all on his side. But then on the other hand, um, Putin has been very isolated, isolating himself from the real world. It's not impossible that uh, the, the advisors closest to him will say, you know, this isn't going well. Um, we're not going to use nuclear weapons. I don't know. Uh, could be the end of Putin. I think that would be a good outcome for the world. But a, a lot can happen. A lot is unstable right now, uh, especially as, as we're still seeing the war go on. And um, we, a lot's going to depend on what happens on the battlefield. It does. And we look whether or not we're going to enter into a World War III. But one of the things I thought I was seeing, and I hope I am correct, and uh, Dr. Ullman had mentioned, is that NATO is taking this opportunity. The NATO countries are starting to strengthen themselves. Now, under the NATO regulations, each country is supposed to take a certain amount of their GDP and invest it in NATO protection. For many Mm -hmm. years, countries were not doing that. Trump forced countries to do that. But for many years, a great number of them put zero in and waited for the United States to defend them. That's not a good mixture, is it? Right. Uh, No, it's not. Um, And even before President Trump, he's been a great advocate for trying to get our our NATO allies to spend more money on defense. um, Because it's important. We've we've learned that uh, war and trading sovereign countries, nuclear weapons, they're not things of the past. They're, They're still happening in the 21st century. 
Um, and fortunately, we're, looks like we're finally seeing that change in NATO. You know, it's too bad that it took an invasion of Ukraine to do that, but Germany recently announced that they would boost their defense spending to over uh, 2% of their GDP, which is something that they've been refusing to do for quite some time. Um, and it's funny, we here at the Heritage Foundation have been joking about how um, Vladimir Putin has, has made the best case uh, for increasing defense budgets. That's it's a long priority of heritage to spend more money on defense, and Vladimir Putin is making that best argument for us in countries around the world. It's, it's more important. It's not something we can neglect. Well, you know, we don't see that here just yet. Uh, matter of fact, the defense budget got cut. The number of F-35s that we originally planned on ordering – when it came down to the actual order, they even cut the actual order even lower than that. Um, mm-hmm. In many cases, we're still using technology. Yes, it's been upgraded, but still from the 1960s. Uh, so we're not keeping up with the curve. Well, meanwhile, Putin is moder- modernizing his mechanical warfare, but not his troops. So you, know, mm-hmm. you can have the best equipment, but if you don't have competent people to run it, uh, maybe you've got a failed invasion of Ukraine. <laughs> right, and we're seeing that happen. Um, Putin took his troops after the Cold War, modernized them, gave them better equipment. But, yeah, when it comes time to the war, we, we see them having fuel problems, logistic problems, fighting problems. That's, that's a plus that the United States has. We take pride in our people and train them well. Um, but if I could go back, you mentioned using equipment from the 1960s. Uh, the, the prime example of that is actually our nuclear forces. Um, the United States, all of our nuclear weapons, all of our missiles were designed and built during the Cold War. Um, our, our ICBM, our Intercontinental Range Missile, was designed in 1960 and was supposed to retire by 1980, and we're still squeezing life out of it. Um, you know, imagine you're, you're driving a car designed in 1960 and you're expecting it to keep you safe. Um, Fortunately, we are working to build new nuclear missiles to replace these old ones, but um, it's, a, it's moving slow and it's a priority, and uh, something that we push for here is making sure there's enough funding for these programs to update our nuclear weapons, because you know, as we're discussing and as we're seeing, those forces are important as ever. Well, you know, a lot of people listening in, and a lot of people, of course, in America, they go about their daily work. All right, so what? World War III breaks out. It doesn't mean anything to me, Uh, but no. Um, How far is the range of nuclear arsenal that Putin has, and who is safe within the continental United States? Oh, yeah. Uh, Russia has a massive arsenal that can strike uh, everywhere in the United States. Um, Usually when I talk to the public, Americans are often surprised to know we don't have missile defense against Russia's nuclear forces. We only have a very, very limited missile defense architecture that's meant to defend against the smaller uh, North Korean threat. So yes, this is this is something that Americans need to worry about. Um, the conflict is in Ukraine right now, um, but what if it what if it spreads to a NATO ally? What if Putin's next invasion is of Latvia, which the United States is obligated to defend? Um, you know, what if a nuclear weapon is used against the NATO state? Um, there are there are fears of escalation to for Russia uh, to threaten to use its arsenal against the United States. Um, and even if we're not talking about World War III, uh, Americans, you know, we should take interest in what's happening in Ukraine. Um, just look at the, the price of, of wheat, for instance, is going up because that's something that's produced in Ukraine. A, a stable, peaceful Europe is 
is always going to be in our interest. You know, we pay our farmers here to not produce and then become reliant on imports. You know, let's get back made in America, grown in America once again. And that is a, a failure of the, all the administrations in not promoting that. And we will never be self-sufficient, but at least we should be sufficient mm-hmm. enough to uh, maintain the status quo. But that's for another, another time. You know, um, right. you had mentioned Latvia, and my husband's family uh, was from there. They fled after World War II. Um, his oh, father wow. was in the Latvian army and held in a prisoner war camp by the Nazis, which was just another glorified form of concentration camp. So, you know, to that is something when I saw them go into Ukraine, everyone's going, what's, what's their goal? Well, once they get into Ukraine, now it's just a little bit of a stepping stone to step into Latvia. Mm-hmm. And the most important port that Putin wants is that of Riga. It had its nuclear submarines, its ballistic uh, based out of there. Now you're straight across into Finland, Norway, Sweden. You have an exit going out towards England. You have a control of the whole northern area of Europe. And that's mm-hmm. a very important port. He wants that back badly. Yeah, that's a that's a solid assessment. Um, Putin hasn't hit his ambitions, which is to restore the prior Soviet empire. He has actually stated a handful of years ago that the one of the greatest geopolitical catastrophes is the dissolution of the Soviet Union. Um, and we've seen he invaded uh, Georgia several years ago. He invaded Ukraine in 2014, and now he invaded Ukraine again. Um, and you know, who's to say he will he will stop at Ukraine? I'm sure he would love to go into one of the Baltic states. Uh, you know, Finland, Sweden. Um, the good thing is that most of those states are a part of NATO, and um, we're seeing the, you know, the fruits that NATO has produced. If Putin is going to invade a country that is in NATO, including Latvia, Estonia, Lithuania, um, he has to face the entirety of the alliance. And that's why it's so important that we continue to support and bolster our NATO forces, because it, it, it does work as a deterrent against uh, Putin's ambitions, and uh, part of this is very clearly communicating our, our resolve, our cohesion with our allies, and showing Russia that any any invasion into the alliance um, will have consequences. You know, um, a lot of people are going, well, what about happened to the Star Wars system that Reagan was touting all the time? That was supposed to stop the missiles from hitting the United States. Whatever happened to that? But it was never meant to stop a nuclear weapon, was it? And is it is anything of it left in place? Great question to bring up the Star Wars, the SDI. Yeah, the goal of that was to be able to intercept any nuclear missile headed towards the United States. Um, President Reagan wanted to have hundreds of missile interceptors in space and on the ground. Um, none of that really happened. He, it, it was became politically, technically difficult, expensive, and uh, over the years, the goals became uh, smaller and smaller for missile defense. And what we're left with today um, is, a, is a small missile defense system here in the United States. We have 44 interceptors out in Alaska and California that are able to intercept just, you know, 20 to 40 incoming missiles. Um, and it's, it's actually a matter of policy. It's not designed against Russia. It's designed against uh, the rogue states like North Korea. Um, Russia has uh, over at least 1,500 missiles that can strike the United States. Um, 
1,500 nuclear warheads, and our, our missile defense system is not designed for that. Um, so that has been another priority of Heritage Foundation, trying to um, devote more money to our missile defense, make sure we can at least defend against rogue, crazy states like North Korea, um, and then move forward from there. Well, you throw China into the mix, and China now hooking up with Saudi Arabia and making the partnership with all over the place. You know, we have ourselves an administration that is asleep at the wheel, and they're catering to these regimes that just want nothing more than our destruction. So as we see this war in Ukraine unfold, um, our enemies are becoming emboldened because they see the weakness you know, we had strength under Reagan, we had strength under Trump, but without mm-hmm. that strength in the administration, we can talk about arming ourselves and doing whatever we can, but if we don't have a leadership in power to utilize these tools, we may as well put our head between our legs and kiss our sweet patootie goodbye. <laughs> exactly, and President Zelensky, the Ukrainian president, even said in his address to Congress a few days ago, he wants the president of the United States, Biden, he needs to lead the nation and lead the world in peace. And, you know, I'm glad to see the administration um, putting sanctions on Russia and sending military equipment, but it would be great to see more leadership out of, out of this administration. Um, and I'm glad you mentioned China because, you know, they're, they're another story. Um, if we, we can bring it back to nuclear weapons, uh, China is rapidly expanding its nuclear arsenal. They're building hundreds and hundreds of more nuclear weapons. Uh, and I'm not, I'm not so sure if, if the United States is prepared for that. We are, we're going to need to focus on to being able to deter not just a Russian nuclear threat, but China's nuclear threat, too, now. Well, they've been launching some missiles uh, off the shores of Taiwan as, like, a, testing the mm-hmm. water, pun intended. And we're not doing yeah. a darn thing about that. They're building islands for bases, and we're not doing anything about that. Um, we're going to be caught with our pants down when China finally takes its step forward, because if Putin does mm-hmm. fall, China's going to see a power vacuum and step right into it, won't they? Exactly, and that's, that's China's ambition. Uh, President Xi has made it clear. You know, He says this stuff publicly that he wants to be the dominant power in the Asian region and then eventually um, achieve equality or superiority to the United States as the global power around the world. Um, China has great ambitions. They're reforming their military. Uh, they're engaging in economic coercion around the world. And like I mentioned, they're building up their nuclear weapons. Uh, and uh, China has also made it clear that they would like to annex Taiwan and the United States, we have to be prepared for that. And I I mentioned before this administration um, is interested in cutting the defense budget. I think you brought that up and cutting our nuclear weapons programs. We need to do the opposite. Uh, You mentioned President Reagan. We can win and uh, deter our adversaries when the United States is strong and not weakening itself. Yeah, well, unfortunately, we sent so much technology over to China. It was not hard for them to figure out the engineering. And one of the things is you have something manufactured in China, you've got to give them all the plants. So the F-35s was getting, was getting a lot of the electronic equipment and steel from China. Uh, you think they didn't mm-hmm. get our secrets when they were manufacturing? If you remember, it wasn't just too long ago the pilots were starting to pass out as they were flying. Well, the equipment that was maintaining the air was being made in China. 
So lo and behold, they finally said, well, maybe this is not such a good idea. But we've already given them so much knowledge. And with the fall of Afghanistan, they now have the designs for our night vision goggles. Only we had that. No other nation had that. With the fall of Afghanistan, they now have a border with Afghanistan that opens the road to all the rare earth metals. And lo and behold, within hours of us pulling out, China was making agreements to mine those rare earth metals. To do what? To make the batteries, to make the electric cars, to make all the smart devices and computers and other equipment that we have become so reliant on. And China is just waiting to pounce. For sure. Once after the the 9-11 attacks, the United States, you know, became distracted with counterterrorism. And China saw that as a window of strategic opportunity. Uh, Same with the financial crisis in 2008. They thought, okay, uh, the United States is going to diminish its power. This is our chance. You know, while we were fighting war in the Middle East, which, of course, was justified, you know, there after the 9-11 attacks, um, China was stealing our technology. They're watching very closely. There were... um, building up their national power and their military capabilities. And it's only been in the last few years that the country is being awoken up to the China threat. Um, they're the, going to be the challenge of our day, or the pacing threat to the United States is, is the term that our, our military leaders have been using. Um, and we've been talking a lot about shifting, pivoting to, the, to Asia to try and make sure we're ready to confront China, um, but we haven't seen a ton of action yet. So we're, we're hopeful that this administration in Congress continues, you know, works on investing in the right sort of military capabilities, um, you know, having the right sort of trade relations with China in order to, to focus on that threat and uh, prevent Chinese aggression around the world. Yeah, we have to also make sure we tighten our alliance with India. I mean, they have an ongoing battle between China over their border. And it's constantly skirmishes. So, you know, we have to stand strongly behind our allies uh, because the size of India and the capacity that they have to take over a lot of this manufacturing and other technologies from China for the United States. But people don't understand that with China, for every company that goes to do China, business in China, they have to have a member or several, or at least one member of the Chinese Communist Party on their board. So no matter what technology, what trade secrets you got, the Chinese are going to know every single little detail. Otherwise, you're not operating. Mm-hmm. And then by the time they get everything, they turn around to the company and says, we don't need you anymore. We're going to do the manufacturing, and Walmart's going to be say, selling the made-in-China widget and not yours. Right. Can yeah, we be you that blind? Sorry? I said, can we really be that blind? Oh, yeah, I know. It's, it's a very difficult problem. Um, China, they have, it's part of their law that um, com- companies that are part of China or in China need to be able to share their intelligence with the Chinese government. And we've seen that problem with technology and other capabilities. Um, and, you know, you mentioned our alliances in the Indo-Pacific, India, um, very important for combating China. We've been working well with the Japanese, the Australians, um, and it's those sort of relationships that ought to continue because, um, you know, United States is one country, but when we come as a united front of democracies, we'll have, be able to have the best chance to deter and stop Chinese coercion. Patty, Curtis, this is a go ahead, Curtis. Yeah, um, speaking of alliances and commitments <clears throat> to our allies, if the Chinese were to attack Taiwan this weekend, how should 
the mm-hmm. United States define? Very good question. So uh, before we get to how to respond to a Chinese attack, we need to be doing everything we can to deter a Chinese attack, to show China that attacking will be a bad idea. Um, and that means deploying missile defenses in the region, showing that if China tries to launch missiles at Taiwan or at United States assets over there, they will fail. Um, deploying more more ships, more submarines to the region, um, showing that if, if China attacks Taiwan, the United States forces are there to fight. Um, sending more weapons and more military equipment to, ta- to Taiwan so they're able to to fight China and, and prevent them from invading. That should be our first and foremost priority, showing China that invading Taiwan will not be in their interest. They'll have to fight and lose um, a war. If they do invade Taiwan, um, you know, the, the United States, we may maintain a commitment to Taiwan. We, we don't have an, uh, a formal treaty obligation to come to their defense. So I think, you know, the, the Biden administration will have to look very carefully at our interests and make sure that whatever response we, we do, we are, we're helping Taiwan to deter the threat um, because a, a Chinese-run Taiwan would, would certainly not be in our interest. No. We're down to our last five minutes, and it's been so much fun, uh, Patty Jane. You have, definitely have to come back on. There's so much more to talk about and things that we can and yeah, can't do. Yeah, love to. But we're running out of time, and people can find you over at Heritage Foundation over there. They can read your excellent articles over there, and you guys do such great, great work. So please thank Tom for on my behalf for sending such a lovely person over. Oh, thank you. That's nice. I I'm, I'm love being on the show and talking about these things. So, yeah, please... Let me know when I can come back. Anytime. Just tell Tom, hey, take me this week. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. Have a a lovely weekend, and God bless you for all the hard work all of you do over there. All right. Patty Jane Geller. We appreciate you. Thank you. Check her out. Uh, at the Heritage Foundation. We're down to our last couple of minutes. Uh, We were supposed to have Mark Berline on uh, about the dumbing down of America. Uh, Tiffany Thompson has uh, some new singles out. We were going to have her today, but both had to cancel and go to next week because of scheduling. Uh, Two weeks from now, Mark Tapscott will be back, and Kathy Burnett will be here on April 15th, Income Tax Day. I told her it's a perfect oh, yeah. day <laughs> to come back on. She is uh, running for uh, Senate out of Pennsylvania. So we've got ourselves already starting to line up into mid-April, and that's a good thing for us. So, you know, I guess that's all we got here, Curtis. And uh, yeah. I got my well, tea so party good. meeting on Monday, and uh, life goes on. So I guess I'll see everyone here, same bat time, same bat station next week. So with that, Curtis, I say good night and God bless as I leave everyone with Gary Pecorella and the song Save America. Good night to all.
I'm never 